Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. It's the Mixed Martial Arts Hour. What's up, everybody? It is Monday, August 6, 2018, and Caesar is home. How are you? My name is Luke Thomas, and this is the MMA Hour here on MMAfighting.com. Thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. Not a moment's away, so we have a very jam-packed show for you guys today. In about five minutes or so, we're going to be joined by Invicta Bantamweight champion Sarah Kaufman will be here. She'll be doing our Monday morning analyst segment, looking back at UFC 227, looking ahead, GFC 230, 229, 228, the whole kind of uh, business there. Then, at 1220, speaking of UFC 230, he'll be taking on Nate Diaz in the biggest fight of his life. Dustin Poirier returns to the show at 1240. He's also going to be in that UFC 230 card. Israel Adesanya will join us all the way from New Zealand to discuss what appears to be his grudge match with Derek Brunson. Then at 1 o'clock, we're going to do the weigh-in. I'm going to weigh in anyway. 105, no, excuse me, about 115 or so. We'll get to your tweets. Then we're going to do the sound off. we got a lot of stuff to get to. As always, number to call 844-866-2468. Keep sending those phone calls. I'm told they were very good over the weekend. I don't know how many of you were heavy breathing into the, the uh, receivers of your phone like a bunch of weirdos, but I'm going to guess it was a uh, significant portion. So keep sending those calls and the tweets as well using the hashtag #TheMMAHour. There you go. You can see that there at the bottom of your screen. All right. Fun show planned. Looking forward to it. Got a couple of hours here to follow up. What a what a great weekend it was. I don't know if it, you know, maybe something bad happened in your life. It was a good weekend for me. It was my birthday yesterday. I turned 39 and I feel old as Christ. Uh, but I had a good birthday. My family took care of me. I got to see my dad. My wife cooked for me. I got to go and have a day to myself, do a couple things I wanted to do. Saturday, got to watch some just absolutely sensational mixed martial arts. Really, if there's anything you take from Saturday, there's a lot of different things you can take from Saturday, but if you really want to be like just very candid about it, if you watch that co-main and especially for me, that main event, like elite MMA and even like really good uh, MMA, they're just, they don't look the same. They're like wildly different. They feel different. The action's different. The, the, the competitors are different. It's like the sweet spot of MMA is narrow, but what is inside of it is, is the nectar of the gods, ladies and gentlemen. That was a fantastic show. So um, I really enjoyed it. I had a great weekend. I, I would say I'm refreshed, but I'm coming on here and again. I, every, every time you see me on these Mondays, Chances are I've slept three hours, and I'm just taking years off my life doing the show. I'm dying is what I'm basically trying to tell you. So watch the show while you can, because I don't know how much life I have left to live. Now, he is the um, arroz to my frijole, the arequipe to my pan. 
He is in the back, the producer of this wonderful program, Danny Segura. What's up, Danny? Yo, how's it going? How you feeling, bud? I'm good. I'm all right. Yeah? Not bad. Sufficiently caffeinated, very high energy. Yes, very high energy, <laughs> caffeinated. Did you sleep deprived? But you know, still, still rolling. Just joined the club, bro. I came from five states away. So, hey, uh, did you enjoy that uh, that main event as much as I did? Oh yeah, and I agree hundred percent. There's nothing like high level MMA. It feels different. It feels like a story. It feels it feels like every move matters. It's it was it was fun to watch. Favorite fight on the card was what? Mm, I'm gonna go with Cejudo, Cejudo, um, T, uh, DJ. Yeah. That was a really good. I fight, don't know that it was the most entertaining, but it certainly had me at the most at the edge of my seat. Of course, I mean the fight wasn't resolved till the very last right, round, right? So it was drama all all throughout. I know you got a bunch of calls you got to make to set up the show real yeah. quickly. How did you score that co-main event? Because later on in the way in, we're going to be getting to some of those details. Two four five Cejudo. Two four five Cejudo. Okay, yes, calls are good today. Calls were good. All yeah. right. I'm looking forward to it. So go get Sarah. We'll get her on the show. Sounds good. But I want to tease this a little bit later. Thank you, Danny. We'll talk to you a little bit later. I want to tease this if I could. A little bit later in the show for the weigh-in, uh, I'm going to be talking about that co-main event. Some of the lessons from watching the fight, some of the lessons from watching the reaction to the fight. So do me a favor. You can go to my Twitter feed, at LThomasNews. If you guys can put the lower third, that'd be great. If not, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, there it is. You can see my Twitter handle right down there. Go check that out. There's a poll up there right now. And the question is real simple. How did you score the co-main event? DJ, Cejudo, or don't know, can see it either way. Um, I'm not going to tell you which one is wrong or right, at least not right now, but I want to take your temperature on this if I can. And be candid. There's really no, how do I say this exactly? I'll explain it later, but suffice to say, there's no real wrong answer, right? Because I'm just asking how you felt about something. I'm not asking you to justify it and on what terms. And I realize that the poll is also not scientific. None of these Twitter polls ever are. But sometimes they can be illuminating. All right. So go do that. Now, we have not a moment to waste. Let's get now to our Monday morning analyst segment right here on the MMA Hour. Joining us via the magic of Skype, she is the Invicta Bantamweight champion and just one hell of an analyst. I believe our first female guest as well. Sarah Kaufman joins us here on the show. Hi, Sarah. How are you? Hi. Good. I can't see you, but hopefully you can see me. I can see you, and don't worry, you're not missing anything. Okay, great. Are you a big Batman fan? No. What's up with the Batman thing? Oh, I'm just at the gym, and that is uh, Adam, my my coach. He's big into Batman, and his son's big into Batman. Oh, I see. All right. Well, let's get to it. We got some uh, things I want to talk to you about what's next for you. But over the weekend, let's start with that main event and work our way backwards. Very simply, why did TJ Dillashaw win on Saturday? What did you see? I think the biggest thing is TJ was a little bit more patient. He uh, Threw a little bit straighter. He did still throw loopy punches, but he would step off to the outside. So especially when he was landing, kind of like that that right hand timed at the same time as as Cody. When he'd step off, he'd throw his right hand and move his head offline to the left. So when Cody would come back with that left hook, uh, if his cross didn't land, uh, TJ would get there first. And I think that's what we saw. 
Were you surprised that this fight was actually shorter than the last one? You know, I actually thought like any either of them could win. It was going to be a matter of who would connect first. And I think we saw Cody connected first. But then as he ran in, he got clipped kind of like the first fight. And I, I'm not really surprised that it happened in the first round. I think it could have happened in the first. I think it could have happened in the third. Um, but that scenario was going to play out for one of them uh, within that fight. What do you make of the technical progression of TJ Dillashaw? You know, in the first fight, um, there was a little bit more kicking involved. In fact, he got Cody got dropped in the second round with some kicking. This one, to me, he seemed much more comfortable in the pocket exchanging. Or is that just my imagination? He looked really comfortable. He looked really calm. And, you know, I don't know if that's who he was training with, his training partners, or just they had that feeling that this was how the fight was going to go and that Cody would come in, uh, especially having been finished, you know, his first loss. Uh, he wanted to come back, you know, represent the team alpha male name, and I think really finish TJ and that kind of angst and that anxiety showing in the fight. He just wanted to get it done. And I think that, that Cody rushed it a little bit and TJ was just confident in, in being smooth and being relaxed and finding his moments. Exchanging in the pocket and being comfortable doing that. Is that something you're born with or can that be really developed over time? I think it can be developed a little bit, but you definitely, it, it needs to be worked on, but it's something you have or don't have like some people just naturally do not want to get hit and while it can be learned slightly you're you're going to have that previously and so I think TJ he's been in a lot of fights where he's being hit I mean we've seen the what eye is it his left eye on the screen his right eye um you know we we see that kind of same marking happen a lot because I think he gets in those fights and he will get hit with that left hook a little bit and his eye will kind of start to swell but in that, he's had so many fights where this has been a thing. Uh, he's really comfortable getting into the, the firefight. And he's gotten way better at it. And you can see that in the moment, he now has his eyes open. As he's as they say, when he's throwing that right hand, he's stepping offline. Uh, and then he's just really fluid in, in coming back with his returns. You know what? The only thing I didn't really understand was the ending sequence. Uh, they both throw the right hand three times in a row, but you can see each time TJ throws it, he gets further and further off the line, and and Cody didn't. I, I'm I'm wondering, like, how, it's just confusing to watch. I'm not sure exactly what I'm asking, other than to say, don't you find that a little weird? I actually will use like a right hand twice in a row, three times in a row, because sometimes when you're off on that line, uh, that's what's there to land. If their head slightly to your right and your head slightly to their left, it's hard to throw that left hook sometimes. It's hard to throw that inverted jab or the regular jab because of where they are. So if they're off on this side of me, I can duck my head and throw the right hand with a little bit of a loop, and it'll find their face. And so to throw it twice and then step offline, throw it even three times and step offline, as long as your head is off to your left, um, you know that all they can throw is the same thing. And so it's a little bit of that chicken fight. And TJ just did it better than Cody did. How did you score the co-main event? I had it, uh, well, I, I had it two to two with the second round, the deciding round. You know, I didn't know how they were scoring it. I thought the judges would likely give it to um, Henry, uh, give it to Cejudo, just based 
not based on the takedown, but I think the striking was somewhat close. I had DJ winning, you know, more of the striking in that second round. Those leg kicks were doing a lot of damage. I did think that Henry was starting to find his range a little bit. Um, but then, you know, the takedown with the ability to control on the top, I don't think that a takedown wins a round. But in a round where it is somewhat close, I can see the judges going that way. And maybe that's a product of, you know, how our scoring is. But I, I did have Cejudo what I thought the judges would give winning the second round. Let's talk about those takedowns for just a second. They were really interesting. He was catching those inside trips very effectively off underhooks. Even from overhooks, he would get a 50-50, and then he would find it. So I was really impressed by that. What do you make of the activity he did on top? Eventually, I think in the fourth or fifth round, I forget which one, he was credited by Fight Metric with a pass. Okay. But in the second round, there was no real pass. So in your estimation, how valuable was that control on top? Well, it definitely is effective. And when they talk about effective striking, effective grappling, uh, being able to take someone down and control the fight and not let them up, that is effective. Now, is it trying to finish the fight? No. But we don't score a fight on trying to finish the fight. You know, if this was pride rules, if this was, you know, you know, I think Risen uses the same rules. If you're scoring who tried to finish the fight, you would 100% give Demetrius that round. But being that he did get the takedown and Demetrius wasn't able to move, that is effective. It's not going to finish a fight, but it is effective in not allowing someone else to do something. I see. Uh, in terms of what Demetrius was showing you with his striking, it was pretty effective. I agree. I scored it for Cejudo. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll say that up front. But part of me wonders if the judges didn't really credit DJ's leg kicks all that much. How much do you think that's a problem, not merely in this fight, but generally in MMA still, that you can do really nasty work on somebody and you just don't know if they count that stuff? I don't think that the judges score leg kicks as much as they do a strike to the face. I, I think one hard leg kick is so much more effective than even five kind of range-finding jabs. But something that hits the face is generally what, well, what I would think is the judges generally would score that a lot higher than that solid leg kick that potentially changes how someone's moving, how someone's able to shoot in their speed. Um, so I don't think that they score them that well. Uh, and I thought that Demetrius did an amazing job. Like he attacked that leg, the inside of the leg, the outside of the leg, um, came up to the body. I also love that Cejudo later in the fight started landing some of his front kicks, but I don't think that they're scored as evenly as another effective striker or takedown would, even though they can change the outcome of a fight. Yeah, in your judgment, do MMA rules as they're currently um, not written per exactly, but enforced by judging, do they incentivize headhunting? I think they do because it comes down to like damage one of the one of the biggest criteria is effective striking and damage and so i don't think that damage to the legs is as noticeable for a lot of people as like a big black eye or a big cut or you know something like that would be uh so i, I do think that it it's definitely swayed towards you know elbows knees to the face kicks to the head 
anything that really involves the head or if you can hit them in the body enough that they crumble, then of course that's good as well. But unless someone's falling over from the leg kicks, I don't think that they're always given uh, as much value, even though they are doing, you know, really a lot of damage. What's the most painful shot you've ever absorbed in a fight? Uh, you know, I honestly don't think that I've ever really had a shot that I that I had the feeling of like, oh, that was terrible, which is fortunate. Uh, in my very first fight, I got kneed right in the face. And I just remember thinking, I should probably not put my head there. But it wasn't a shot where, you know, I, I don't think I've ever, my nose hasn't been crushed. I haven't broken really anything in my face. Uh, so I'm pretty fortunate in, in that sense that I haven't had a big body shot land or uh, a leg kick that crippled my leg. Uh, but I just mark up really easily. So, you know, th there's that. There's always some trade-offs. Let's move ahead looking to UFC 229. Conor McGregor and Habib Nurmagomedov are going to face off. I'm, this is the fight everyone's going to be talking about. You know this for the next nine weeks, maybe nine years, to be perfectly honest. So let's get an early preview. What do you think the keys are to victory for both guys? I mean, it's a little bit easier to call that for Habib, given the narrow nature of his skill set. So let's start with Conor. What, what really do you see as absolutely critical in terms of the conditions he has to establish to win? Well, I think he's going to keep his stance long. Uh, and so I think he has to be ready for Khabib to really dive at his legs because Khabib is fully willing. We've seen it in quite a few of his fights. He's willing to drop down, grab onto that ankle, and he's really good at holding on to it. So I think Connor has to be ready to stay low, get his body, move his feet. Um, I don't think that he has to worry about Khabib striking, you know, how Khabib comes in with his chin up. Uh, but I definitely Connor's going to have to use his range. Uh, avoid his kicks, but he has that really hard cross. He has those heavy hands. So I think if he keeps that range and keeps peppering Khabib, I think that's kind of where he needs to stay, stay off the cage, uh, keep his legs away from Khabib. And really, of course, I mean, this is a stupid, obvious thing to say, but he really can't get stuck underneath Khabib because I don't think that he'll ever get up from that. Yeah, I don't think anyone in that lightweight division really can. I mean, we'll see about Tony Ferguson if they ever meet. But for the time being, it doesn't seem like it. You know, somebody asked me, oh, is it really important that Connor work on creating separation along the fence if he gets pushed there? And I suppose the answer is yes. But in some ways, I wonder if the answer is no. Because it seems to me, yes, you want to work on every scenario. But if, you're, uh, if Habib has got you in a 50-50 over-under and you're against, your back is against the fence, it's a wrap for you, right? Yeah, I, I don't think that as soon as they're on the cage, I mean, Connor's probably best bet is to try and land some body shots, to try and to get something going there, maybe clear out, get some elbows, hope for a cut. Uh, but I don't see that he'll be able to clear that space without getting taken down. And I do think that once it's on the ground, it's going to be a big problem for Connor. And, and that given the, the ground and pound ability of Khabib, his controlling style, uh, once he's down, I think within three rounds, if he's down three rounds in a row, uh, I think the fight would be over. Who are you favoring early? And I give you permission to change your opinion later. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think that Khabib definitely has the edge, uh, just because, I mean, we saw it with Edson Barboza, he's not afraid to just walk straight in and, and almost run him down to try and get that, to get that takedown. That being said, Edson's game relies on distance, relies on kicking range. 
So Khabib was able to do that without being too worried about the hands. Whereas I think he does have to be worried about Connor's ability and his power. And Connor will take a shot and, and will and does take a shot. He has that ability to to kind of eat those big punches to fire back. So Khabib definitely has to be worried with that chin high. I feel like that's a big concern. You know, no matter what, he's clearly been working on it, but in a fight, his chin is up, his hands are down. I do think that Connor could get a knockout within, you know, one and a half rounds, but I think likely Khabib's going to be taking this fight within three or four. Before I let you go, let's talk about what's next for you. You last competed, of course, in May. You won the Invicta Bantamweight Championship, so first of all, congratulations on that. Do, do you know what your next step is? I saw you wanted to fill in for Betch Cohea. It didn't go. Did, did USC even respond to that? And if if not, what what's the next move for you? Yeah, I mean, I tried to step in and fight for Aldana. Um, my management team said that they weren't they weren't looking for a replacement for that fight. Uh, I had them contact them right away. Uh, clearly, I wanted to be fighting. And then I almost was able to fight on the September card for Invicta. Um, as someone pulled out, uh, but the other girl didn't accept the fight. Mm. So we're still in the situation of me trying to get any and every fight and all the girls at 135 saying no. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what else I can do at this point. I will, you know, I'll take a short notice fight, you know, I'll, I'll book a fight, but the 135ers are not, are they're just not saying yes. So I don't think Invicta has anything at 135 for me. Uh, so I don't know. Most of the, the last two girls, Tanya and Yana have both come in to fight cyborg at 145. So, I mean, if that's my only option, you know, I'll take that fight. You know, I'll be, I'll be the third, third Invicta bantamweight to come in and fight Chris if, if that's what needs to be done. And I'm confident in winning that fight. I like Chris. I think she's looked great in her last fights. Uh, but I've always been confident that in that fight, that's a fight that I can win, especially with the right game plan. If that doesn't work out, I mean, you know, maybe I take the the Invicta 145 vacant title, I fight for that, and then become the first person in Invicta to have two different titles. You know, I, I don't know where I can go, uh, but I'm willing to to kind of go anywhere and everywhere to try and get myself fight and, and prove that I am the best in the world. And I, I think everyone knows that. You know, the the fans know the the media knows UFC Invicta you know they know that I am in in that top top 5 at least at bantamweight uh but these girls just don't want to fight me well if i if you stay ready um i i am confident that someone of your ability and stature in the sport will get an opportunity you're on a great win streak and i hope to, it, it continues sarah thank you so much for your uh, fantastic analysis and keep us posted on everything that happens with you i hope something materializes soon. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. Great talking to you. Likewise. Okay, we go from one uh, great fighter to another. He is going to be taking on Nate Diaz at UFC 230 in what can only be described as an absolutely monster, monster fight. But it came on the heels of a really weird press conference. The Diamond joins us now. Dustin Poirier. Dustin, how are you? Good. What's going on, brother? Hey, man. It feels like I'm talking to you every week. I pre I appreciate yeah, you making time for me. It's all good, man. All right, are you back on? Uh, are you back home? Or are you still on the West Coast? No, I'm in Louisiana. In Louisiana, okay. Well, let let's start with what happened uh, on Friday 
What is your response to the craziness of that UFC presser? Uh, it didn't feel that crazy to me. It felt like a normal UFC press conference. Okay. You, you didn't, I mean, I guess you're not phased by Nate's, I don't know what you want to call it, objections to the way he's being promoted? No, I'm just worried about myself. I'm not phased by none of these guys. So, uh, all right. You, you're confident that whatever his objections this fight is not, it's, it's going to go forward no problem, right? I mean, as far as I know, I think I would be, I'm the one fighting the guy. If something changed, I think I would be, I would have let, they would let me know. Um, I haven't heard anything. Um, you know, Nate says a lot of stuff, but when he signs a fight contract, I don't, I don't, you know, really know of any times that he's not shown up to fight or pulled out of a fight. You know, he says a lot of stuff and does a lot of stuff in the media in between fights, but when he signs a contract, it guy shows up and puts it all on the line every time. Yeah, actually, in his defense, what I would say is I believe this is true. Neither Nick nor Nate have ever withdrawn from a fight due to injury, ever. Right, um, right. They've, got a, they've got a pretty good sterling record in that regard. Did the UFC tell you what he was complaining about? Did, any, did, you, did, did it ever, like, did we ever figure this out? I think what it was uh, is he was upset that he came down to do the press conference and then they uh, promoted Connor and, and Khabib, you know, and those guys weren't even there. And he was there, like, I don't know, I think that's maybe more of what it was, like, you're wasting his time promoting these other guys while he's there on stage and ready to talk about his fight type thing. But I'm not 100%. That's just hearsay, you know. Fair enough. All right, so I spoke to you after your fantastic win uh, at UFC Calgary, and you had sort of laid out basically the scenario moving forward. One was title shot. Okay, well, now we know Habib's going to be fighting Connor. But the other one was, you know, only if something really big came around. Here you are, uh, you know, a week since that conversation, because, yeah, we spoke last Tuesday almost, and uh, you took the fight. So in your mind, what was the – why did this get you to sign? What was so big about it? You know, Nate's probably <clears> – putting the title aside, Nate's probably the second biggest fight that I can get. Besides, you know, it would be Connor would be the biggest fight, obviously, and then it's Nate Diaz. Who, you know, that in in the lightweight division, that's the biggest fight I can get right now. Then, um, you know, Nate's a guy I've always watched fight. I I've been a fan of his for a long time. I've always wanted to fight him. And Madison Square Garden is another uh, part of it. I've always wanted to fight him. Madison Square Garden, so much history there. Uh, you know, I fought a lot of places. That's that's one place I want to scratch off the list. So this fight just made sense. Uh, if the title fight was, if if the UFC told me that, yeah, you're going to fight for the belt in four months, I could have waited four or five months. But the way it looks, you know, Connor and Khabib are going to fight towards the end of the year. Then I don't know what's going to happen when the, when the belt's going to be defended again. And uh, you never know what's going to happen, man. So I don't want to wait 10 months. I want to stay busy. And this fight made a lot of sense to me. Man, uh, someone put this out on Twitter. This guy who goes, I don't know if you know him, Dustin, but he goes by the name of the Grabaka hitman, uh, Kaposa. You'll have faced, let me see if I got this right, Nate Diaz, Eddie Alvarez, and Justin Gaethje in a six-month and 20-day span. When you think about it, that's kind of crazy, but it also might be one of the better runs outside of any kind of title defense of any, of any fighter in the modern era, potentially, in that short amount of time. You know, uh, when I beat Nate Diaz and it's my turn to fight for that belt, when I win that belt, when when history looks back at all this, you know, nobody can ever say I didn't earn anything. 
I uh, never took a took an easy route. I've always fought the best guys. I've never pulled out of a fight. I've never missed weight. I've uh, put it all on the line every time, win, lose, or draw. And and that's what I want to be left behind in my legacy, you know, a, a guy who just pushed through it all and kept kept that and stayed true to the path. And this is all part of my legacy. Uh, do you know where this fight is going to be put on the card? This is a co-main event. Okay, so this is the co-main event. Interesting. Um, uh, and they've told you definitively there's no way they're going to put an interim title to make it five rounds for sure. It's only three. I mean, that's, I didn't even think of it that way. I would love to do it for the interim belt. I would love to do it for five rounds. You know, that's what I said at the press conference. This is a main event fight. Uh, you know, if, if I don't finish Nate in three rounds, the fans are going to be upset. You know, it, we're going to want more action. We're going to want another two rounds. But, yeah, this is a three-round fight. Okay, so let's talk about the fight itself. First things first, the Diaz brothers, as I mentioned, never pulled out due to injury. You know as well as I do, they always come prepared. They always come ready to fight. They always come in excellent shape. My only question would be, while Nate has certainly been training, he has not been actively competing. How much of a factor do you think that will be? You know, he's a vet. He's a veteran. Um, everybody's different, but most, you know, when you have as many fights as he has, as many fights as I have, you, you know how you need to feel. It's more about timing and rhythm. You know, a few sparring sessions, I'm sure he'll start to see that come back if it's not already there. Um, he, he's in the gym always. He's competing in, in the gym. I'm sure he's doing jiu-jitsu all the time. And yeah, the 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 competition and, and the the damage you take in sparring and all this type of stuff, sometimes it, it's better for guys. You know, they, they feel better coming back after time off. So everybody's different. It's tough to say anything about that. Yeah, all right. So in your mind... What are his biggest strengths? Obviously, his, his uh, volume, his punching volume, conditioning, uh, his length, his jiu-jitsu, you know. It, it would be, in my judgment, it would be oversimplifying things to say you only need to worry about boxing because if, in fact, it does go to the ground, he is, he is a formidable talent there. But relative to, let's say, Eddie Alvarez, is it fair to say – while Nate is a very, very tough competitor, it's only three rounds, and he just operates on a narrower skill set. He's very, very skilled in that space, but he's not really going to kickbox you, is he, right? So in that sense, is he slightly easier to prepare for? No, nah, man, none of these guys are easy to prepare for. It's just a whole different thing. It's a whole different game plan. It's a whole different range. It's a, it's a southpaw. Things line up differently. Um. Yeah, no, nah, it, it, no fights easier pre preparing for than uh, the other. These are just different preparations that go into these. Now, what's interesting is that you're going to be on this co-main event, right? If you win, you took this fight because why? It's, as you mentioned, Madison Square Garden. It's a, a huge name in the sport. Have they told you no matter what, if you win this title shot is yours? I mean, I guess we can all rationally surmise that you would get it. What I'm wondering is, has the UFC made any guarantees? No, nothing's guaranteed in this in this thing, in this MMA stuff that we do. But uh, I could probably wait for it now, you know? If, if I really wanted to, I can sit out and wait, but that's just not how I roll. I want to stay busy. I want to keep beating the guys and keep building to my, my career. And, uh, yeah, that, that's what I want to do. Where would Nate, uh, excuse me, where would beating Nate Diaz, in your mind, be on your resume if you were ranking your best wins? 
Where would you put that one? You know, he's just another guy who's been around a long time, a legend of the sport. Uh, you know, beating him after I beat Eddie Alvarez, I'm going back-to-back on, on the guys who I think are some of the biggest names in lightweight history. So that's just solidifying me as being amongst those guys. You know, uh, when, I, when it's all said and done, you know, when I get my title shot, when I get the belt, when, like I said before, this is just all part of the legacy. This, this is what, you know, part of the reason I fight. Uh, let's talk about the fight that's going to be happening a month before that. It's now official. Connor taking on Habib. We just had Sarah Kaufman on, and you know as well as I do, people are going to be talking about your fight, but of course, that one's going to be taking up a lot of oxygen as well. Um, you have fought Connor, of course, at a different time in your life at 145. Early prediction for that fight, Connor versus Habib. I'm kind of leaning towards uh, Khabib. I just don't know, um, you know, if he's going to stop Connor or or whatnot. But I'm thinking he's going to get the victory. So the one thing I'm trying to wrap my head around is we. I think we can all agree if Habib locks up with him, right? It's okay. That's when it begins to tilt heavily in his favor. How hard is it to be a sniper and then catch someone like Habib on the outside? And put him away. Land punches, yes, but land like the devastating kind that change a fight. Like, how much of a chance really does Connor have to do that? I mean, he has a huge chance. He's uh, got great timing. Uh, he great judge of distance. You know, we'll just see if the if the takedown defense holds up and the cardio holds up. That's that's all he has to do. I think the the openings will be there, uh, but he just has to stand the test of the wrestling and the conditioning the physical part that could be is going to put on, on, uh, at early in the fight. Right. And so the same question would apply here. Nate took all that time off. So did, uh, Connor. In fact, Connor still took the fight what, a year ago this month, but it was in boxing. So the ring rust questions, again, you think it boils down to this idea of, um, you know, some guys are just different. Some guys can do it. Some guys can't. Yeah. It's all, it's all like a mindset really. Um, once you get your rhythm down, your timing, Everything else falls into place. By the way, you're going to be taking on Nate Diaz. Does you ever had an opponent who is verbally like in your face in a fight before? Uh, I mean, I've I've had exchanges with guys in, in fights where we're both talking talking crap, but maybe not as much as this one as this as Nate has done in the past. Uh, what 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 kind of things has an opponent said to you before? I don't know, man. But definitely, I've, I've have, you know, I've had some words with guys while we're fighting. Uh, are, are you anticipating that being the case here? It seemed like, you know, the, the, it's interesting. You and Nate are still, I think you're obviously much younger than he is, but you're still relatively youthful, both of you guys. Um, but it seemed like you both had this, like, veteran respect of one another. I, I know you're going to be being prepared for every contingency, but do you get the sense that that'll be a component come fight night? We'll see, man. I think he knows what kind of fighter I am, and uh, obviously I know what kind of fighter he is, and we both know that each other are dangerous, and and we, you know, I think there's a level of respect there. What's interesting is, I, I, you know, you can only worry about the things you can control, but you are the guy, right, that pulled him out of his, what do you want to call it, hiatus, sabbatical, whatever. Why do you think you were the guy? Like, what is it you think he saw uh, in you that made him want to hop out of 
taking time off? I, I don't really have a clue, man. I uh, it, it could be because um, I know he did. He him and uh, Eddie Alvarez had some, you know, a history of disliking each other for sure. I heard that they were, you know, about to get into it and a few times and maybe since I beat Alvarez and they just decided, you know, this is the time and this guy just beat somebody I want to beat up. So maybe it just lines up. I, I have no clue. Hmm. Yeah. Well, potentially that's it as well. Um, I don't know if you saw the news today. George St. Pierre was in, I believe in Australia doing some kind of press tour and he openly stated he would like to pretend, I mean, he doesn't think the UFC is going to give it to him, but that he would like to get the winner of Habib and Connor. What do you make of St. Pierre's interest in this uh, in this winter? Look, after I beat Nate Diaz, I'm fighting for the belt, you know, or I'm fighting GSP. But he's not gonna he's not gonna get it before I do. So you'd be open to fighting him if that came to it, but there's no way in your mind he should be jumping the queue. Nah, it's not happening. <laughs> I don't know, man. UFC's making some weird calls these days, you know. Yeah, we'll see about that. Uh, hey, before you go, I appreciate your time here. Uh, how is the uh, charitable effort going uh, back in Louisiana? I'm assuming that's partly why you're there in addition to seeing family. Last time we spoke, folks could still donate to the good fight. Um, is there an update on this? Yeah, you can donate uh, at thegoodfightgroup.com, but the, the auction ended today, and, and we sold the fight kit. So I'm really pumped about that, man. And, uh, are ordered. All we have left to do is uh, school supplies, backpacks are on their way. All we have left to do is lock down everything with the computers. Uh, but that's in the process. Now, are you going to be doing this for this upcoming UFC 230 fight as well? Of course. So you, this, is, this is a thing now for the rest of your career? Yeah, the rest of my fighting career and then beyond that. Well, very good. Are, are the uh, As your profile raises, are you having uh, more and more success attracting the kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, charitable contributions from outside parties? For sure. I, I got to say that the like just on donations alone, this fight and this uh, fight camp has been the most traction we've got with, with a good fight. You know, we were able to buy a lot of stuff before we even sold the fight kit. We were able to order a lot of things. So it's all coming together, man. It's picking up steam and these fights keep getting bigger. So the platform keeps growing for me to, to uh, raise money. And if folks want more information, where do they go? Thegoodfightgroup.com. Okay. Thegoodfightgroup.com. We'll be sure to tweet that out. Uh, Dustin, I really appreciate your time. I know you're going to be a busy man on fight week, but I'll just say it now. The studio here is in New York city. So if, and when you have an opportunity to stop by and say hello to us here, in our studios, there's a, uh, a warm seat for you whenever you're ready, okay? I appreciate it. I'll definitely do that, man. All right. Come on by anytime and um, have fun in Louisiana. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. All right. I've been talking to Dustin Poirier like every week for the last three weeks. <laughs> I got to give that guy a break, man. Uh, but we really appreciate his time. You know, on that last question, what was kind of interesting to me was about why Nate chose to come out of the sabbatical or whatever you want to call it. I don't know. I haven't had a chance to talk to him. I, right. So I'd be, I'd be as a matter of disclosure, I'd be merely speculating here. So, but let me uh, attempt it for just a moment. I think Dustin was partly right that they were, I think he was kind of eyeballing Nate Diaz was an opportunity to settle a score with Eddie Alvarez, but Eddie Alvarez fell short. And I think a couple of things have happened. Number one, 
Dustin Poirier has dramatically raised his profile. And number two, uh, I think it's a very competitive fight. I think either guy can win. I think Dustin has more skills. And if he applies his full uh, breadth and depth of skills, he should win. But Nate Diaz is tricky with the boxing and tricky on the ground, sort of two of the very spaces uh, that Dustin typically likes to operate. So that should be a very, very competitive and interesting contest, UFC 230. All right, not a moment to waste. Let's get now to our guest all the way from New Zealand. He joins us via Skype. He takes on Derek Brunson on that same card we're talking about. The one and only style bender is here, Israel Adesanya. What's up, Israel? How are you? I'm good, bro. I, I know you got up ass early for this interview. So let me just start by saying thank you for making one hell of an effort to do this. What time is it there? It's just turned 4.40. My alarm just went off, so I just turned that off. But hey, this is part of the gig. Well, I really appreciate your commitment and your professionalism. So let me just start by saying that, number one. Uh, number two, boy, that presser was interesting, huh? Where, why is Derek Brunson so mad at you? I think the guy's already scared, man. Like, you see how he carries himself the same energy he had on that stage. It's funny enough, he didn't have that same energy about 30 minutes ago at the hotel. He, uh, yeah, he's just that kind of guy, just because there's people around, he wants to flex, try to sell the fight, writing all this dumb jokes. Oh, you too skinny, bro. I'm like, bro, this ain't CrossFit. Like, <laughs> I'm not even skinny. He's fat. You see his body on that, on, on that stage, he had like a little souffle around his waist. So, yeah, he's just, he's already in his, I'm already in his head. He's in his feelings, like fucking Drake. So, hey, another one. All right. So there's so much to unpack here. This is a crazy one because I get him calling you out, right? That makes sense. I think we can all noodle that through. But you guys have just been uh, like, say again? The UFC, he didn't call me out. The UFC made him call me out. He wouldn't even dare say my name. So, he already signed that fight, and I felt like he's in a position that if he turned down a fight against me, it looked bad on him. So they forced him to take that fight. So he wouldn't dare call me out by himself. And he's trying to make it like, oh, sign the contract. I'm like, bro, if I signed the contract two days ago, what are you on about? He acts like, let's say the WWE. You know, and I keep that same energy. But, yeah, I think he's just, he's in over his head on this one. And he's just trying to make this, I, I He's never been in a fight like this. He's had big profile fights, high profile fights. He fought Anderson Silva, but he hasn't been in a fight with anyone like me. So he's trying to, I think it's a new new territory for him. What is your assessment about why the UFC wanted him to fight you? Mm, I don't know. Well, they, they see what I have to offer. They see what I what I bring to the table. And on that fight in New York, you know, it's a, it's a tournament from what I'm hearing. There's a lot of middleweight guys on that fight, about eight of us. Oh, excuse me, so, yeah, I mean, I got the easiest fight out of all of them. I am mad. It's easy money. <laughs> all right, so, yeah, you, as you mentioned, let's see. Let's go through the list, right? It's supposed to be Rockhold and Weidman on there, you and Brunson on there, Romero and Costa on there. I might even be forgetting about somebody else. I'm sure I am. Um, but the UFC Branch is telling as well. Say again? Branch and Souza as well. That's right. That That's right. Jacare and David Branch. You're right. So now you've got ba you've got basically the elite, uh, absent the title fight uh, of the middleweight division. They've mm -hmm. kind of told you that we're looking to sort this division, and this card is going to be a big indicator about which way we're going to go. Um, well, from what I look, what it looks like, it just looks like it's a eliminator for a title fight. But 
who knows? I'm just, like I said, I really care about the belt. I'm still getting paid, you know? Um, yeah, and I haven't fought in MSG before. You know, I, I, I look forward to it because I've heard about the state taxes over there, but I can I can wear that on so I can say I fought at MSG. Yeah, they are pretty significant here, but you're right. It's going to be a, uh, a fairly uh, epic night and card. I've been to the other two MSG shows. They were... They were something else. Yeah. Uh, all right, let, let's talk yeah. a little bit about this That's fight. It's, say again? I said it's going to be historic. All right, let's talk about this fight, Derek Brunson. Um, in all seriousness, what challenges do you believe he presents, mm-hmm. the biggest ones? Uh, him falling into like a takedown. That's about it. Bum rushing and falling into a takedown. And you've seen my last, like my first fight in the UFC. You've seen my last fight. How many times those guys tried to take me down? And they weren't bad grapplers. Brunson's not. He, I don't know what his credentials are as a, as, as a wrestler, like an All-American Division One or whatever. But regardless, my takedown defense is not something that he wants to mess with and my footwork. So I don't I don't see I don't see any, anything else he brings to the table. He's just, I mean, you look, come on, look at his resume. Even not just the guys he's fought. Look at his highlights. You know, he got knocked out by Jacare twice. And Jacare's got like some of the stiffest stand up you can you can see. Even though they're hard, he's just stiff in the way he moves. So how the fuck is Brunson gonna hit me with some sloppy overhand right from, from all the way from six o'clock? Like, there's nothing the guy has to offer, you know. I'm the guy running the show for that night. I was gonna say, what do you make of his striking? I mean, come on. Just check my memes I made of him. And he even tried to retaliate. But one of the trittiest memes, like attempts ever, and I'm sure someone else helped him do it. And all he had on me was my only knockout loss. And the funny thing, like I said, is I had all of him looking good in my meme, all the good bits, his highlights, and he still looks shit. So <laughs> he has how many knockout losses, and I've even compiled them together. So I mean, come on, check the resume. Fuck stand up, fuck stri- um grappling, just the way we fight, the, the skill set, the way we move. You can't even compare. It's just two different polar opposites. I'm on the other end of the spectrum, and he's in the... I don't know. I think it's just heavy. Like, he's fat, and he's too big for middleweight. So he's slow. He gets a couple first-round knockouts against punching bags. Guys who don't move. Guys who just stand there and are just frozen. So, yeah, he he's another one. You look at the the guys who, who I fought before in the UFC who say some shit like this, say I'm all hype, say I haven't fought a guy like them. I just like, all right, same shit, different night. All right, the uh, w- w- what does a win over him get you? Uh, win over him. Mm, what I'm, what does it get me? It's another one. To be, if I'm being honest, I don't really think he's that big of a name as he tries to put it himself. Uh, no one really knows. If, I mean, if you ask who knows me, who knows him, and how long he's been in the UFC, I bet you I've got more, more, more. Uh, not just clout. I've got more followers. More more of a name that he he has and I'm only in the UFC like I think my my seventh month in the in the in the UFC so yeah a win over him it's just a ranking thing but at the end of the day I said fuck rankings I'm just trying to get you know through all the killers of my era you know and I think yeah doesn't really do anything for my career just another another rank I beat that's it you know I have to say I sort of admire the effort guys put out videos about you and you don't immediately respond then you make your own video 
where there's highlights spliced in, there's a bunch of memes coming in, right? And then finally, by the time you put it out, it's this much, it's this grander production. Like, wh what is the thought process behind that to make you know less uh, less responsive but a greater impact? Like, what you're, explain your love of memes. I don't know where it comes from, man. I think with memes, I think it's like it's changing the culture. You know, it's uh, a means that. I don't know. It's one of those things like hieroglyphs for the Egyptians back in the day. You know, people are going to look back on this era and look at memes like something that, that shaped the culture. And it's a funny thing to say, but it is. You know, I've, I've only just started to kind of dive into Reddit and see like the history, you know, where because that's where everything kind of starts off apparently and then eventually ends up on the famous, you know, sites like Niangag or whatever. But yeah, I've, I just... I saw what he did, and I was like, even he said, hey, I'm going to say your name, boy. And he didn't even say my name. So that gave me the initial idea, and I was like, fuck. And I got stuck in it for about an hour and a bit, and I knew it was going to be fire. I mean, who else? Uh, I'm changing the game in my own way. And he, he's, he's even trying to copy me as well. Same thing at the bar in L.A. A couple of days ago, I see him. I, I embarrass him. He tries to do the same thing. He's not original. He just tries to copy what I do. He's like, he's like Mr. Me Too. How, who makes the videos? You make them? You edit them? Facts. And I know his one, he doesn't make the videos. He's not even that smart. His video was shit. He put up like pictures of me that I've already posted of me looking good. There's no comedic timing. There's no, you know, there's no flow to his shit. It was just chunky, like a style. Like a style of fucking <laughs> fighting. It's just all over the place. It's shitty. Now, how did you two end up in the same hotel? Or, uh, I'm sorry, not hotel. The same restaurant at the same time in LA. What's that? What happened there? That was at the hotel. That was at the hotel where they put um, all the guys for the presser. So uh, I seen them. He same thing. Just kept on walking, and then eventually I, I saw him um, across the bar, and then he kind of caught my eye. Caught my. Eye. I can't remember what happened. He said something, and before you knew it, I started filming and just yeah, clowned him, and uh, yeah. I'm I'm not first. I'm not gonna like whoop his ass for free. He can wait till November third. I'm still gonna get get paid for knocking him out. All right. Is it my understanding that you recently came to a new contract agreement with the UFC? Uh, I don't know. Is it? <laughs> that, that's the rumor I've heard. I'd like to confirm it with you. Uh, I don't know. Allegedly, allegedly, that's my new favorite word. I can say whatever I want and just put allegedly right behind it. So, I mean, all I'm going to say is allegedly. All right, let's say it's allegedly well, true. I'm yeah, I'm sitting pretty. Let's just put it that way. I'm in a good spot. I'm in a good position. Nothing like Derek's ever been in. It, it, it seems like after your last fight, uh, there are many corners to turn in someone's career, but that the UFC... I think they've always had faith in you, right? That's why they signed you. That's why they're promoting you. That's why you're fighting back-to-back -back like that. But it felt to me like something a little bit different happened after the last win, right? Yeah, I shut everybody up. Everyone that thought, oh, my God, it's too soon. He's only had two fights in the UFC, you know, and they didn't do their homework. They didn't check the resume. They didn't look at the styles. They didn't look at the body type, the way I move, how the skinny boy works. So, yeah, I think I made a big statement in that last fight, even though, I mean, for me, everyone gets caught up in finishing people. You know, and I finished motherfuckers. In my, in my kickboxing career, it was the same thing. 
I, I went in my in, in the earlier part not finishing people to like so I kind of got used to my body used to the way the way um, everything was set up and I started to finish guys and I had like a long streak of knockouts in a row so yeah I'm only three fights in this UFC thing so eventually Derek's gonna be the first one on, on, a, on a long line of finishes so even just that fight was uh, was a masterclass the one with Brad you know he's a tough guy a veteran he's been around a long time. And I made him look like an amateur. So imagine what I'm going to do, Derek. Are you going to be disappointed if you don't finish Derek? Nah, I want to punish him. I just don't think he's going to last. Like the way he, uh, he might not last one round because of the way he fights. Even in that press conference, if not for Dana White, if not for Dana White, he would have right into my whatever I wanted. I had my I already established my distance with my with my arm on his chest, and he's already running forward with his chin up. Just that already tells me how he's going to approach this fight. You see me, I come through, collected, boom, put my put my fist in his chest. So he's one of those guys who's going to do the exact same thing and fall on his own sword, or my sword, actually. Mm -hmm. The interesting part about your development, we actually just had Dustin Poirier on the show, and I was thinking about it. You guys both told me something interesting after your last fights that were real similar. So he beat Eddie Alvarez, and he told me, you know, if a title shot or something big comes along the lines, I'll take it. But I want to take some time, put the gi back on, and just work on my craft. I recall in Vegas, after you beat Tavares, you were saying something similar. But then the UFC comes around, and they got big opportunities for you. And, you know, you kind of got to ride the hot hand while you have it. Do you have any concerns, though, about not taking the amount of time off to just focus on your craft a little bit. That's what we're doing right now. I mean, I learn pretty quick. You know, I'm like, uh, I'm a copycat ninja. If I see it, I can replicate it so fast and then start using it on certain people as soon as possible. But um, yeah, I took my time. You know, it's been, I fought on July 7th. So I'm, I'm, I'm taking it out of August right now. I'm still doing my thing. The fight's all the way in November. I'll be in shape by the time I start camp. I start like the, the gritty stuff. So right now it's just me relaxing, working on certain things, healing my body and my mind. And this is nothing for me. I've told you guys before, in 2016, I fought over 20 times. So even after I smoked Derek in the first round, you know, Adelaide's on December 2nd or December 1st. So I might look for someone else to help me get on that card because I used to fight on the on the uh, local circuit in Adelaide. But um, yeah, Derek's easy work, so it's, I don't mind taking a fight like this. You know, it's not even short notice, but I don't mind taking a fight like this against him. I, I don't know if you saw. Have you had a chance to watch Dana White's Tuesday Night Contender series at all? Uh, a couple of them, not all of them, but I've seen in some highlights as well. So, what about it? Did you see this kid, Sadiq <sighs> Yusuf, who is uh, American but of Nigerian yeah. ancestry, saying? Uh, Nigerians are taking over. I mean, you do the math here, right? I'm trying to think about where the best competitors that I know of, and I certainly have some blind spots, but there's you, there's Kamar Usman, there's now Sadiq Yusuf. There's got to be a bunch of other guys. So here's my question to you. Is Nigeria the capital in Africa of MMA? Mm, right now, facts. And I feel, I keep saying, I'm the runt of my people. You know, I went back, I'm going to go back again next year, but when I went, when I went back, I think three or four years ago, just, I was looking around at the, at the kids playing and, you know, just the, the people around. Some of these kids are just specimens, man. And they might not even come from the best well-off family. They, their nutrition might not be that well or that good, but they're just specimens. And I'm thinking, man, if someone just takes that football out of your hand and puts, you know, teaches you how to box, teaches you how to wrestle, 
kids are freaks over there, and they, I don't know what it is. It's just the genetics. So I'm the runt of my people. I look where I'm, where I'm at. You look how far off because I had to work. People say, "Oh, you're so talented." It's like, nah, I work to get to where I'm at. It didn't, this, it didn't just come to me easy, you know, apart from the rhythm maybe and the and the way things flow. But physically, I had to work to where to where I'm at. So eventually, one day when I go back, I might start recruiting and letting these kids know, hey, it, there's another avenue. That's why I haven't spoken Yoruba after my fight to let them know me, Kamaru, you know, we're out here. And a lot of us, uh, we're, we're making splashes as well on the local scene. So eventually you start seeing more Nigerians and kids from Africa in general running running the UFC. Yeah, it's, I mean, the way that Russia has been changing MMA is a function of the fact that, yes, MMA got popular there. But also these guys are being pulled and recruited to other teams across the world. And then they're essentially ambassadors for their country. Seems to be like if Nigeria had some kind of system like that or somebody was able to help them in that way, at least at this stage, they're ready to make an impact yeah, fast. It's, it's always like that. There's waves. The Brazilians were on top at one point. Americans as well. I, like A lot of the champions were Americans at one point. I feel like right now it's the Anzacs, the guys from Australasia, Oceania. Guys like me, Dan, um, Alex Volkanovsky, we're slowly starting to let people know that we're on our way. So eventually, we've even got shooters in my gym over here that can beat guys like Bumson or anyone else in the UFC, but you guys just don't know them yet. And eventually, you guys will start to realize, and before you know it, it's too late. And it comes in waves. It always comes in waves, but right now, it's our time. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Before I let you go, I appreciate your time. Let me just pick your brain about some of those other middleweight fights on that UFC 230 card you're going to be on. What do you make of the rematch between Chris Weidman and Luke Rockhold? Mm, let me see. Just don't throw any spinning back kicks for Chris Weidman. He might be all right. Uh, we go now to Jacare and David Branch. Mm. Branch is a black belt on the hands, all right? Yes. I think so. Uh, I think if Branch just keeps his distance and doesn't doesn't make any mistakes, he should beat him. I don't know if he can finish him, but he should beat him. Interesting. And then you have Paulo Costa and Yoel Romero, two athletic freaks. Call the golden snitch. <laughs> See, everyone says this. Uh, like, what am I supposed to say? Romero has been looking this way <laughs> since age 18. And Costa, certainly he looks like He-Man, but he's being regularly tested by USADA. It's like, what are we supposed to say after that fact? Allegedly. <laughs> Bringing the allegedly back. All right, man. Well, look, I know it has uh, been an early morning for you. I really appreciate it. Congrats on all your success. I said the same thing to Dustin. I'll say it to you. When you get to New York, it's going to be cold in November. Get a parka, but it'll be warm in here in the studio if you want to come by and say hi. We're, we're ready for you anytime. I appreciate that, man. Thanks, Luke. But, hey, I already bought my fur coat when I was in the Bronx. So when I come back to New York, I'm going to buy another one and make sure I'm toasty. Sounds good, my friend. Get some sleep. Good training. We appreciate your time today. Sure, brother. Thank you. Yeah, there he goes. He is, uh, it is never a dull moment with the style bender, huh? That is something. All right, we appreciate all those people for stopping by. Now, normally we were gonna, we were gonna schedule the show a little bit differently. We had to bump everyone up to the front hour because that was just the way things worked out. So 
We still have a lot to get to. 844-866-2468. That's going to be the number for you guys to leave your calls. We have the sound off coming up a little bit later. We've got some tweets we have to get to later. But now, ladies and gentlemen, we have graphics for this. Yes, we do. Not only do we have graphics, we have audio components for the graphics. It is time now for me to weigh in. Huh? Look at that. Can we show the folks here on the other shot? Look at that. Huh? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Thank you to everyone here at Vox who helped make that possible. I really appreciate it. It's a little too literal with the numbers, but I'm teasing. I'm actually, I love it. I think it's great. Uh, all right. So for the weigh-in today, what is my central point? My central point is as follows. There were, uh, I asked folks to go to my Twitter feed, at LThomasNews, and that there was a poll up. Let me pull the results of that poll up now. This was issued at 11 a.m., so it's been two hours. There's been about 2,300 votes or so, and the question was really simple. Who do you think won? How did you score the co-made event? Did you score it for DJ at UFC 227? Did you score it for Cejudo or don't know either way? The answers are about what you would expect. About a quarter say don't know either way, and then 37% for DJ, 39% for Cejudo. There are two main points to consider in the following statement. Henry Cejudo is the rightful winner of the co-main event at UFC 227. And there are two components, as I mentioned, that buttress and support that conclusion. Let's start with the first one, the overarching claim about judging. Now, if you scored it for Demetrius Johnson, depending on, of course, what your logic is, but can you cobble together a very convincing case in favor of him? The answer is, of course you can. Of course you can. It is not very difficult to do. Um, so I don't mind if somebody did not score it for Henry Cejudo, but you might be saying, well, didn't you just say that Cejudo's the rightful winner? Right, and if Cejudo had won, excuse me, if Johnson had won, I might be making the exact same statement, and that sounds crazy. Right. That's the scoring criteria we have. Folks, if you ever followed my live chat or if you watch any of my post-fight specials that I do uh, on occasion, you have heard me rail on about this, and I shall continue it now, although I'll abbreviate it uh, for expediency's sake for those who have already heard it. But basically, our scoring criteria, forget the way it's simply implemented, but certainly the criteria itself and the way in which rules are written and what they essentially value and don't and the way in which we experientially enter into the world, it makes it possible that you can have not one, but two different winners for the same round or the same fight. And it, understand what that means. People think if I can make a strong case for Johnson, that that invalidates a strong case for Cejudo. But that's not the case. They can both live in the same space at the same time. Think about it very easily. You watching on a high-def screen like this one, that's one way to experience the world. It's very, very different when you're cage side. And remember, the judges don't sit together. One sits here, one sits across the cage, and another one from a different position there. Experientially, you're in a different position, right? So you might see things right up close to you. I've, I've called fights on a much low, le lower level. When the fights are right up front, you can see and feel and hear everything. I actually end up giving up more weights to body shots as a consequence of what I saw there. But a lot of times, you might see guys on the other side of the cage and there might be grappling going on. You can't really tell what's happening. Maybe they use the monitors for instant replay. Maybe they don't, or not instant replay, I'm sorry, uh, uh, for live 
viewing to really get a better perspective, but maybe they don't, right? So that experientially changes the way in which you can experience and see something and understand what's really happening there. On top of that, there's other subject, uh, subjective criteria that come into play. Consciously or unconsciously, you might value leg kicks or you might value certain kinds of leg kicks. You might value leg kicks in certain kinds of contexts or you don't. And maybe you're explicit with that bias or maybe you're not. On top of that, again, what did you hear from the crowd? All of that will weigh on top of you. And then more to the point, you can lay out what you believed is a clear and unequivocal definition of effective grappling or effective damage. But this is a fight that shows you that the definition of effective grappling, it might seem straightforward on paper, and certainly they have provided some degree of, of, of shape and, and parameters to help somewhat narrow the conversation, but it's not really, in the end, necessarily all that helpful, to be perfectly honest with you. There is a lot, a lot, a lot of gray area, a ton, in fact, a metric ton. And this is sort of my second point that I want to make here, because it fits into the first one. Now, we all think that effective grappling is a sufficiently well-known thing, Right In shorthand, without reading what the unified rules say, although I did go over them last night in preparation for today's show, you can say to yourself, well, what is it? All right, it's guard passing, right? We can all agree there. You get a takedown and you start passing guard. First you go to half, then you go to side. Maybe you go to mount, maybe you take the back, something like that. Maybe you go back and forth from side to side. Maybe you go knee on belly, but some kind of exercise of control from a dominant position. Yeah, that makes sense. And on top of that, what about effective ground and pound? Sure, pitter-patter punches aren't nothing, but they don't count as much as a big smashing or slashing elbow, right? I think we can all agree with that. They don't count as much as a, uh, a knee to the ribs or something. These are all things that I don't deny count as effective um, damage in certain cases. And in, aforementioned previously, effective grappling. You are exercising a greater degree of control over somebody. You are exercising uh, an advancing threat. Right When you pass the side control, as you do that, and then you land, a, let's say, a knee to the ribs, you're adding on to the damage. These are fairly straightforward things to understand. But this fight tells you that there is so much gray and so much room for subjective interpretation. And at the highest level, when you're talking about elite fighters, so much matters in the tiny spaces. It's easy to grade a big-ass elbow that lands on someone's eye socket and crushes it, a la Jeremy Stevens and Josh Emmett. Okay, yeah, that's clearly really impactful damage. But I saw people saying that Henry Cejudo had laid and prayed on Demetrius Johnson. Uh, couldn't be further from the truth. There is no truth to that at all. At all. And I even saw some people trying to advance stats about, well, how many guard passes did he really attempt and or score in that time? How much, how much uh, you know, positional advancement was there? How much time was spent in static positions? This is a clear case where, look, I have been a major proponent of statistics in MMA, and I will continue to be. They are valuable. But here is a clear case where context matters. Let me ask a very simple and very basic yet revealing question. Was Henry Cejudo on top ever in any submission threat duress? Ever. At any point he was on top. Name one nanosecond where that was true. One. Because I can't find it. 
He was not under any submission threat. And why is that the case? In order to be subject to a submission threat on top, to a degree, to a degree, the person on bottom has to consent to bottom position, right? If you want to launch a Kimura underneath, you have to get on your side. You have to grab their wrist, no thumb. You have to grab your wrist, no thumb, although you can use thumbs if you have to, and you motorcycle grip it, and there's a lot of details that go involved. But I have consented to being on the bottom. Now, there's actually back takes from, uh, from Kimura underneath. You actually let somebody pass to the same side, and you use the, the spinning motions of your arm and your wrist to then spin around to the back. It's a Keenan Cornelius special, although everyone does it now. So yes, it's not that you're necessarily consenting to staying on bottom, but for a moment in time, you are on the bottom. Think about an arm bar or a triangle from your guard. You have to now, you want to have a nice tight core. You might have to let your hips go off the ground. You might have to pull them into you. You might have to push and pull with wrist control. You might have to grab a collar tie. You might have an overhook. Lots of different setups there. But for a moment in time, you are doing that. Now, it might also be the case that you are launching a submission attempt as a means of forcing them to escape so that you can stand up. But at for a moment in time, you have to consent to some degree of bottom position. If you want to launch an omoplata, to a certain extent, you have to consent to being on the bottom. Could be for five minutes. It could be for five seconds. It could be for two seconds, half a second. But there is some degree of consent there. Very little, almost none, of what Demetrius Johnson was doing on bottom was consenting to bottom position. He was looking to stand basically the entire time. And two times, he didn't even have to worry about that because he hit fantastic Granby rolls in transition and nearly took uh, Henry Cejudo's back in one of them, although credit to Cejudo for himself for scrambling out. But perfect. I mean, that was genius. And there was, there was a moment in time where Demetrius was consenting to bottom position in one of the takedown scenarios merely to offer up a moment for him to get wrist control, feet on the hips, to create separation and stand. Right? He wasn't trying to just berserk his way to the top. But this is my point. If you've never, and look, folks, I will say it now. I will say it forever. I am not an expert. You should listen to the, to the real experts for the real sophisticated insight. But what I'm about to say, I believe to be incontestably true, no matter what one's degree of expertise actually is. Namely, if you are struggling on top to keep someone down underneath you, a grown man who knows how to get up, you cannot allow for major windows of space in which to, 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 to posture up and control um, uh, and then land ground and pound. Think about Eddie Alvarez against Dustin Poirier against the fence. Why did he throw that elbow? I said it on this show, and he said it himself. He was in such tight, narrow spaces that if he tried to pull back to throw a shot, it would open up space and then up Dustin Poirier goes. He had to keep it nice and locked. Now, he threw a shot you can't throw, but in that space, what are you going to do? You're going to do this? There's nothing there, right? So he was trying to think of the most devastating shot he could throw in a narrow, tight, and confined space. To me, lay and pray is if I take you down or somehow we end up on the bottom and you consent to bottom position and you don't really do a whole lot in terms of defending yourself other than maybe a little bit of a collar tie and an overhook, and I don't really do a whole lot to pass, that's one thing. But Henry Cejudo had to struggle like crazy to keep uh, 
Demetrius Johnson down. Go back and watch. He did the Obralio Estima special. You got to get their elbows off the mat. He digs an underhook on one side, right? And he digs an underhook, or I should say, uh, against the fence, a cross face on the other. Palm down across the cross face. If this is the head, like this, and he's going to lean into it. Why? If I can control your hips and your and your and your spine at both the hips and at the collar and at the neck. It, it really impacts your ability to move. Now, it impacts my ability too, which is why you see him let go for a second, throw some body shots, and then re-scoop the elbow. And then he tries to throw a head shot, and then he re-establishes the cross face. Yo, you have to do that or the position goes away. Now, I'm not telling you that that's as good as a slashing elbow. And I'm not telling you that that is as good as a guard pass. It's not. It's not. It's clearly not. However, here's what it is. If I'm not consenting to bottom position and you are forcing me to be down there and the instant any space is created, you are round over round firing to your feet, my ability to control you on the bottom, to put you in a place where quite literally you have zero offense, it's not that I have overwhelming offense myself but I have just enough control to totally neutralize you. But I want, here's the key. I'm wearing you out physically, and I am landing small intermittent shots. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not lay and pray. There are guys who underneath are so talented, you, you, you can feel it. They get on their side, they get a Z guard, or they get a knee shield, and they're gone, dude. Or you get other kinds. Well, if they get an underhook, they're gone. Or if they can scoop the far side leg and they do deep half, they're gone. You have to lay these people flat. And that is hard to do. Go back and watch how Henry Cejudo struggles with his outside leg. He has one leg scooping on top for the half guard and the outside leg is struggling to find the right balance. Where do I put this leg so I don't get rolled? Where do I put this leg so I put maximum hip pressure down? Where do I put this leg so I can control yours from moving? And it's a hard decision to make in real time. That is a skill. That is not an obvious thing. If you don't believe me, there are so many jujitsu gyms right out there in your city. Many of them let you train for free for 30 days or a week. Pay a mat fee for crying out loud and go find somebody who's black belt level because that's what you're dealing with here who wrestled at any kind of a level, because that's what you're dealing with here, and try to hold them down, right? They are not consenting to bottom position. Their whole objective is to stand. They are showing that with you by the second they can even get on a side, the second they can even get an elbow, and then a hand, and then their hips back, and an underhook, they're gone. Folks, to be held down in that scenario is very difficult to do. So I'm not here to tell you that Slashing elbows aren't a better gauge of top control and damage and guard passing and all that. All the traditional hallmarks of what we know to be guard pa or, uh, uh, of dominant top control and effective grappling, all that's true. But if I take you down and I hold you down and I put you in a position where now you are carrying my weight, I am at least to some degree taxing your cardiovascular resources. I am controlling you physically on the bottom. I am landing small but intermittent shots. I'm winning. I'm winning. And by the way, the more that that happens, I'm putting myself in a position to accrue points and to at least put the fight in a closer range that speaks to my offensive opportunities 
and uh, a better position for me. Who would you rather have been in that scenario? Henry or Demetrius? Trust me, you would rather have been Henry. I'm not saying Demetrius had the shit beaten out of him. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying of the two who got taxed more, who spent more resources in that position, 1,000% Demetrius Johnson. What, by nature of the cause, if you get taken down and stretched flat to stand back up is way more taxing than hitting a crossface, scooping it, and then driving an underhook with some kind of trail figure four back there that he kind of had with his legs. Much, much harder. And that he even had in additional elbows in the fifth round, uh, or maybe it was the fourth, and then occasionally had a big punch here or there. Easy, easy call. The only things that matter in effective grappling are not just big elbows and big punches for damage or guard passing or getting mount or getting back. Yes, those are the most valuable. But in a fight against the pound-for-pound best fighter of the last how many years? The margins matter. The tiny little margins matter. It is not lay and pray. Not at all. That is such a disservice to the skill shown and the will, the battle of wills shown by Henry Cejudo to lay a guy like that flat over time to wear his physical resources out. It is totally unfair. So if you want to count a guard pass more, I'm not here to talk you out of it. If you want to count taking a back more, I'm not here to talk you out of it. But go back and look at all of the races. Usain Bolt has won. Sometimes he's lapping these people like he's superhuman. And sometimes it comes down to a tenth of a tenth of a tenth of a second. Just a little bit of a photo finish difference. That is what you saw here. That is what you saw here. Maybe it just comes down to the slightest degree of difference, but it's not lay and pray. And now, if you incorporate all of that back into the reality that we currently live in, namely that you have criteria where that kind of gray exists and those kinds of margins matter. And now I have my own as a judge biases, whether or not I am conscious of those or not. I have my own physical, experiential situation where some things are going to be more impactful to me than others. I'm going to hear certain things better. I'm going to see certain things better. But there are going to be some things I don't see very well at all or hear very well at all or, frankly, even understand very well at all. Can you cobble together and make a strong case for Demetrius Johnson? Yes. Can you do the same for Henry Cejudo? Yes. And in a scoring criteria where you can make a strong case for both participants, you are talking about a scoring criteria where in the end, if one guy narrowly edges the other in a very, very close contest, you just can't get upset. Yes, if you're a fan of Demetrius, you can be you know, sad for it or, oh, that sucks. That's not the outcome that you wanted. I get it. That's okay. That's what being a fan is all about. But you also have to come to the recognition that those little margins I'm talking about, with all of the other ambiguity that exists, folks, what happened on Saturday is no robbery. It is no travesty. There is, frankly, very little of that, if nothing, that is controversial, other than the disrespect being shown to the skills of Henry Cejudo to do what he did. Did you disagree? Okay, that's America. Disagree. But don't you dare say that was lay and pray.
That was skill, and he earned that, and you should recognize that fact. Time now. Let's do some tweets. All right, Danny. Where are you at, buddy? Let's see if we can get this going here. Yes? Yep. Am I, am I wrong? Am I right? What do you think? Um, I think you're right, yeah. Uh, uh, you said two, four, and five for Cejudo, yeah? Yeah, two, four, and five for Cejudo. Now, is that your Latin American bias? Shining through? No, no, not at all. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Demetrius. I think I think he's great. Yeah, who's I not? Do, who's I not? do wonder, and I think this has seen in this argument has come up in other title fights, specifically George St. Pierre versus Johnny Hendricks, is because we expect the champion in this case, Demetrius Johnson, to do so well that any little success that Henry Cejudo has is that. Do we make a bigger deal than what it is? Um, to me, that's not. It's hard to say. Mm-hmm. To me, that's not the best criticism. I think if somebody said, well, how did the injuries impact Demetrius's performance? I am open to that argument. I, I, I am very much a believer that those kinds of things matter a whole lot more than uh, some observers want to say. Did you see that picture of his foot? I think Jamal Karsandu took it from uh, his uh, Instagram feed. Bro, his foot looked like, you ever seen that? You ever see uh, Big Trouble in Little China? I've I, I've seen only, but I vaguely remember. So that, there was that one dude who could blow himself up. Do you remember oh, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he just explodes. Yeah, yeah. Imagine that dude's foot. That's what Demetrius Johnson's foot looked like today. So to me, it's like, dude, if you tore a ligament in your knee and your foot is broken, yeah, that didn't impact your performance. Especially someone like Demetrius who relies on movement a lot. Hundred yeah. percent. You know, again, and when his speed fades, it's going to be a problem for him. But I thought he was very quick on Saturday night, and I thought he was very nimble. The only thing I would say in uh, his defense was I thought that Henry had a clearer and more obvious game plan. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I was watching the fight again today, and it looked to me like one guy was trying to do something clear, objective, traceable. And Demetrius was doing a lot of things, but I, I didn't see it. I didn't see an aim or a purpose there. And so I wonder in a rematch, or I should say a, a, a rubber match at this point, if healthy, and with a clear purpose in mind, things might go a little bit better for him. Yeah. I definitely, well, you're, you're interested, by the way, and I'm sure we're going to get to this a little bit later, but you're interested in seeing a, a, a rubber match between these two. I, I don't, I don't know, I mean, I don't know it, how you not do that. Yeah, you have to do it. But uh, yeah, that that is an interesting point. And, and now that you mention it, it is true. It didn't seem like, okay, like he studied and he's like, okay, I got to do this specifically and I can catch Cejudo with this. DJ just looked like he was fighting. Yeah, like he was just reacting. He was just fighting, yeah. yeah. And uh, just going with the flow while Cejudo, he knew the inside trip was there. Yep. He knew certain ties were there, snapping him down. Yep. Um, he knew what he was doing. Uh, so, yeah. All right. So, and like I said, like if you look at it's an obvious example. Like who fights with a purpose? Yeah. It's, it's an exaggerated example. Habib Nurmagomedov fights with a purpose. Boy, yeah. he goes in there, you know exactly what he's trying to do. I didn't get a good read on what DJ was trying to do. Yeah. So something to keep in mind for the future. All right, give me five seconds on the clock. Let me do some of these tweets. Five minutes. Five minutes. What am hey, I saying? Hey, and last time you slacked, you you finished. The buzzer went off, and you were still rambling. The, you you gotta you gotta get these out. All right, man. I'll keep it tight. Keep keep me honest. Keep me honest. All, all right? right. Let's put these uh, the the thing on the clock, and we shall get these going. All right. Let me know. Ready? Okay. When the first tweet goes up, hit the clock. Here we go. Uh, question right here, Danny. Are the UFC, is the UFC happier with Cejudo being champion instead of DJ? 
And in a similar way, were UFC pulling for Cody over TJ considering the union and also the fact that he's a CAA client? Thanks, Danny. Yes. In fact, TJ is a CAA client, and I do believe that Cody has a WME promotional deal, so I do think that impacted his ability to get a, a, a rematch and, and why they wanted him to win. Uh, now, you know, they, I'm, I'm sure they're happy with TJ, but they, 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 yes, the people they have contracts with, they're going to probably give some favorability to, and you can understand why they would sign him in that way, but there probably is some truth to that. Are they happier with Cejudo? beating DJ. I think they're happy with the fact that there's a bit of rivalry now. Um, we'll see if Cejudo can hold on to it. Remember, these titles are fleeting. Guys get titles and then they lose them. And he was already calling out a guy in a different weight class. So we'll see. But I think they're happy that there's some kind of action happening inside that space. Next. Uh, okay. How does an 11-time champ lose on points for takedowns, especially when the takedowns didn't amount to anything? Well, I don't think he lost strictly on takedowns. There's a question of to what extent he lost in the striking battle in various rounds. Remember, fight's not scored as a whole. It's scored round by round. And I would even agree that you can make a pretty strong argument for Demetrius getting the better of the striking, especially with those leg kicks. I don't know how much the judges counted those, but as I have explained, number one, Putting someone down with a takedown matters, although how much in the end, not necessarily a whole lot. But if I've got a fair degree of riding time controlling you as you are actively making it a wrestling match by resisting and you have no offense in that space and I have nothing but offense in that space, sorry, the idea that you're calling that nothing is not true. How much weight you want to give to it beyond calling it nothing, fine, we can have that debate. Maybe you don't give it that much weight, but you do have to give it some. It does actually matter. And if you're just going to say it doesn't count for anything, you are excluded from the conversation. Next. Zero problem with a decision, not a robbery, but do you think Mighty Mouse may have partially lost to himself this weekend? Were the judges scoring this fight uh, against his past performances? No. If he wasn't dominating, he was losing? No. But as I do mention uh, to Danny, when I looked at him, Everything he does is slick and smart, and he's just good everywhere. Like, I didn't look at Demetrius and go, oh, that was a bad performance. But I wonder what the game plan was. And if the game plan was, well, and often it can be in combat sports, you hear it all the time, take what they give you, take what they give you, take what they give you. Okay, but maybe he got surprised if that was the case. And I, I don't know. It just didn't seem clear to me what he was actively trying to do other than with some of those scrambles and uh, being on the ground, pop back up, which he did a really good job of in certain respects. But it just seemed a little directionless as a game plan. I could be wrong about that. I, I can only speak for what I saw, not what I know. I wonder if the third fight might be a little bit different. Next. Uh, is Luke going to forget uh, the stands for Caesar and Rory again? Yes. As a matter of fact, I did. Yet another goddamn week where I forgot the stands for both Caesar and and Rory. Although, if you go to my Instagram page, Luke Thomas News, you can see it out there. Here we go. Here's Caesar. I took a picture and a video. So if you go to my Instagram page, you can see it as promised. I'm a dumbass, which you already knew. Next. Uh, DJ didn't demand a rematch in the octagon following his loss. You mean a rubber match, but I know what you mean. Did he ruin his chances of getting one by not doing so in front of the crowd with that many watching on pay-per-view? I think he probably felt like he was injured and calling for one right then. Just didn't seem all that prudent. Get healthy. Maybe he's burned out. That could be another thing, too. He's beating all these guys all the time. Remember what he was saying before the fight? MMA is only 20% of my life. The rest of my life is my kids and my wife and my house and everything, which I can understand, right? You could, it makes total sense. But if that's the case, you know, where is he at mentally? Maybe he even wants a break. Maybe he even wants Cejudo 
to go and fight somebody else. So I would say if he felt banged up and he knew something was wrong, not asking for one uh, is a big deal. But he can always come on shows like this one or other shows, and he can demand a rematch, and it'll make big news, and it'll start a conversation, and he'll be off to the races next. Uh, Connor will undoubtedly be a huge pay-per-view draw, but is the UFC potentially missing out on the biggest possible numbers by not sending these two to Ireland and Russia to do press tours? Let's see in the end what they come up with. But the question is, if you're selling a fight on pay-per-view, why do you need to go to Russia? Now, maybe you can go to Ireland because uh, you're trying to still curry favor in that market, and they are in Russia as well. But that's a far trip for these people to make. Ireland's right across the pond. Um, they're going to be fighting in Las Vegas. It's not very far from right now. That's a lot of travel in a short window. And on top of that, we're not, we're not talking about pay-per-view buying customers for the most part. So it makes no sense. Next. Uh, who are some of your favorite fighters who have a low fight finish percentage? Um, who are some of your favorite fighters who have a low fight finish percentage? John Fitch for a time, I thought uh, was pretty good in that regard. Um, you know, Adesanya hasn't finished his last couple of guys, but he's certainly one of my favorites. So now there you go. How'd I do Danny? I do better this time. You did. You did. All right. Right in the buzz. All right. Good stuff. Uh, without a moment to waste. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is where you become a guest on the show. It is time for the sound off. All right. Time for the sound off here. Look at these new graphics that we have, huh? Look at that. Looks great. I love it. Where you at, Danny? There we are. You don't like the new? I like them. They're, they're sick. They're pretty they're good. They're pretty good, yeah. By the way, the Adesanya Brunson fight... Are you not hyped for that one, bro? I am super hyped. I cannot. I mean, that whole card. I, I love when the UFC does like these themes, like middleweight, heavyweight. This is amazing. Yeah, a few years ago, yeah. they did that all main heavyweight card. Yep. And I don't know where all these other middleweight fights are going to go. I really hope they put Adesanya on the main card. Yeah. I'm saying that selfishly, but if you're trying to promote a guy. and He needs to open the main card. Right. He needs to be on the most visible yeah. part of that call, by the, uh, card. And by the way, I'm interested. Remember, they did three title fights for like what? Both of those MSG cards, if I'm not yep. mistaken. And they're gonna have, you're gonna have Diaz and Poirier as your co-main, so that means you can only really be doing one title fight above that, right? Which which one? Like, right? Uh, yeah. Just just get Brock out of you out of testing pool. Can we just or just throw another interim belt, right? Something like that. All right. So we have calls first, do we not? Yes, we do. All right. Uh, All right. You said they were good. Yes. They were good, yeah. I would. I was surprised, actually. I think we had more tweets uh, submissions than calls, which is usually surprising. You know it's usually the other way around. No, but they were still pretty good. People are, you know, here's the thing. Mm -hmm. We appreciate all the tweets. The calls require a greater degree of effort. And I feel like our audience, as mouth breathers, which I accept as, as a mouth breather, mm -hmm. they're just a little lazy and they don't want to pick up the phone. Boys, girls, pick up the phone, 844-866-2468. Call, leave a message. We will play your shit on the air. All right? All right. All right let's, let's get started. Let's do this. First question. Obviously, uh, leaving UFC 227. Hey, this is Brandon Quintana from Rosemead, California. How has your morning been so far, Luke? Cool. Anyway, TJ and Cejudo have both mentioned moving up and down weight classes to fight the next champion over. TJ wants to move down. Cejudo wants to move up. But what is best for business? One could argue TJ's bit of star power could shine some light onto the flyweight division. And on the other side of the coin, Cejudo moving up in weight and fighting the bigger man could bring some legitimacy to the flyweight division. Give us your thoughts. Thank you. 
By the way, we had this debate on the MMA beat last week about what was the best fight to make, TJ DJ at 135 at 125. I believe firmly I won that debate. That is not a fight you could make at 135. That is a much more interesting fight at 125. What say you, Danny Segura? Um, is there is that really a super fight anymore? I mean, hold on, the hold on. Whole... I'm not making that claim. What's a better physical fight? More competitive. What I mean by that is, which, which one's more competitive? Which one's more competitive? Mm, I would say. Competitive-wise, I think, you know, if TJ drops to 125. That is the correct answer, Danny Segura. It's not the correct answer. It's my opinion, right? But as far as maybe what what performance, performance-wise, what's the highest level of fight, it might be at 135 because I'm telling you, like, TJ might make 125, but I think that's going to have to come with some sort of repercussions on his performance. So if you want to see both guys at their top, and Harrison Hood is not a small flyweight. I think 135 is where we get the best fight. All right. Now, to answer the question, though, I was glad to see Dana White say, yeah, let's cool it with the super fights. I am so happy to hear that. And frankly, it couldn't happen at a better time. I don't want to see TJ go down. I don't want to see DJ go up. I don't want to see Henry go up. You have clear order of business in both of these weight classes. You need to do a rubber match between DJ and Henry for sure. And TJ has Marlon Moraes to worry about. He's got out there somewhere. Dominic Cruz to worry about. He's on a quest to be the unequivocal best bantamweight ever. And I don't know if you agree if he's there. I, I think he's on his way, certainly. But he's got some work left to do inside their divisions. No need to mess with the formula that's already working. Yeah, I agree 100%. I do think uh, Dillashaw is in the conversation, but he's got tons of work to do. I, I don't think he's the guy at bantamweight. It's like he's definitely a leading contender. Yeah. But no one has, like, set themselves away from the pack just yet. No, I, right? I think Dominic Cruz owns that title. Do you I think mean, so? I, oh, yeah. Because, like, let, don't forget about this. The guy fought in WEC. But what was WEC? WEC was basically the UFC because all they did was bring that division over. So all those title defenses were against legit sure, guys. Sure, UFC caliber guys. How long did he hold the title for? Uh, I don't know, like a few years, no, right? Not, he probably defended, and like— Not counting the injury time. because Right. You know, or, or you know, give, I'll spot him a year of injury time. But then yeah. after that, that's it. And, and let's not even count length. Let, let's title defense numbers. I, I can't remember out of the top of my head, but it's got to be like five or six, right? Yeah, it's at least that. I'm going to pull it up right now, actually. Yeah, and nobody has able to hold that title. So I think Dominic Cruz by far. And, and let's be honest, Dominic Cruz at one point, dude, he, he was on the top of the world. I think he's still very game, but I think his better days are probably behind him. Um, so you got to consider that. And plus, Dominic Cruz has a win over TJ. So how can you not? So, make the argument that Dominic Cruz because is the best band. Because if you want, you can play MMA math. And if you want, which I'm not going to do, but if you want, you play MMA math and you can say, wow, look how uh, well Cody did against Dominic. You know, That's true. And then TJ but that was an older Dominic Cruz after a Fair lot enough. of injuries. Now, to your point. So we're talking about a Dominic Cruz with tons of title defenses and a win over the guy who we're talking about of, of being, you know, the GOAT at best. This is his title campaign. Started in 2010 at WEC 47. He beat Brian Bowles, Joseph Benavidez, Scott Jorgensen, Uriah Faber, Demetrius Johnson, uh, Takeya Mizugaki. There's a three-year absence in there. Crazy, right? Yeah. And then a two-year absence, and he beats TJ Dillashaw, although it was controversial, but he did beat him. And then he beat Uriah Faber in a rematch in 2016. And then after that, he lost to Cody Garbrandt in 2016, hasn't fought since then. So that's a hell of a resume. That's a hell of a run as champion. I would agree his run there is pretty exceptional, but TJ is knocking on the door. Yeah, he is. And and now he's got the belt. He's just got to put in the work, and he can definitely surpass that. Now he's hey, got to do it. you beat Cruz in a rematch, you beat Marlon Moraes, conversation gets a lot different. Yep, I agree. Next. Cool, let's move on. Now let's talk about Henry Cejudo. Okay. Hello. 
My name is J.R., the Irish Mexican, and I'm calling from Central California. And my question is, no one is more deserving of a media rematch than Demetrius Johnson. But with his apparent injuries, should the UFC and the new flyweight champion Henry Cejudo wait for Demetrius to heal? Or should Henry Cejudo defend his title or move up to 135 and fight uh, T.J. Dillashaw? Thank you and enjoy the show. Have a great day. Great call. Really appreciate it. Very good call. I got to be honest. I know Henry called out TJ. Yeah. Couldn't be less interested in that fight. I'm sorry. I, I, the, the, the gap in physicality between flyweight and bantamweight, to me, is very significant. These guys at bantamweight, yo, they, they knock each other's blocks off, and they don't really nearly to the same extent at 125. It, you could say, well, what's the, diff- what's the 10 pounds between flyweight and bantamweight? It's just another 10 pounds between bantamweight and featherweight. It's not the same 10 pounds, man. That's a much, much longer 10 pounds between 125 and 135. I think those guys are hit hard. I think they're fast. Maybe not as fast, but pretty goddamn fast. And the physicality is just way more apparent. Again, I'll say it a thousand times. You can make it to be a wrestling issue. I sat right there when Dominic Cruz wrestled Demetrius Johnson in Washington, D.C., and just he couldn't do anything about it. If Henry Cejudo can do that, these guys want to wrestle him. They're going to have a lot more success. Forget about the knockout power. But the question is, Danny, I'd be curious to get your response on this, is the one he had. What about the injuries? Because now, here's the thing. To me, the most exciting flyweight fight you can make right now, assuming everyone was healthy, which they're not, but let's say they were, is DJ uh, Henry 3. But what if you don't book that, and then you book Henry against another flyweight, and he loses? Now you've lost the rubber match, and it's a giant mess. So play matchmaker for a second. I don't think the rubber match is lost. I think you could do that at any point. I think Demetrius Johnson is super deserving uh, for that immediate rematch. If he wants it and if he's healthy, he should get it. Now, if he wants to take some time off or he's injured and he has to take time off, the belt has to be defended. I'm not interested in in seeing uh, Henry Cejudo go up to 135. So that's out of the question. So I think he should defend it. Who Who's at the top right now um, of the flyweight division? Sergio Pettis. Sergio Pettis. Didn't they fight recently? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, I believe uh, Henry beat him. He did, yeah. Um, so you could do a rematch there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have Benavidez below that. Now, remember, Benavidez holds a very controversial win over him, which I didn't think he deserved, uh, although I admit it was close. But Cejudo has, since then, uh, since the Benavidez lost, beat Hayes, Pettis, and, of course, Demetrius Johnson. Well, that's a hell of a run he was on. Good Lord. Yeah. Um, his only two losses are to Johnson and Benavidez. But Benavidez looked a little bit lackluster in his last fight, I guess, against Sergio Pettis as well, right? Is that who I'm thinking of? Yeah, it was Sergio yeah, yeah. back in a UFC 225. So to me, I, I guess you can go that direction. Or if I'm Henry, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait a little bit. See, Let's see how long DJ is going to be out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, that's, that's what we got to find out, right? Um, but let's say he's out for a while. Look, keep, keep the title defenses rolling. Like th- this is one of the biggest issues. And this is why we have so many interim titles and so many things come up. Just keep it going. Even if it's not the sexiest fight, even if, you know, the guy's not a serious threat to the title, just keep it going. That's the way it's supposed to be. A champion is supposed to defend his title yeah. against the number one contender, whether it's a huge fight or not, that's the way it's supposed to be. So just keep it going. Let's just see. Let's just hope DJ is healthy enough. Yeah. Soon enough. And then we'll go from there. Yeah. Next. For sure. Hey, now, I don't really like featuring the same callers all the time. I think I like to give a chance to new guys, but Sexy Steve is back, and he's sexier than ever. I don't, we, don't, we have no proof that Steve is in any way sexy. <laughs> well, I'm kind of being sarcastic. It could be Psycho Steve, you. Incel oh, Steve. You'll see. This thing will give you nightmares. You ready? Oh, God. 
Hello. Happy Monday, Danny and Lukey. This is Sexy Steve again from Michigan. And my question is simply, since TJ beat Cody twice now, being knockout both times, is Dominic Cruz next for TJ to get his butt kicked by again? Or should Dom fight someone like a Rafael Sansa? Or is Marlon Moraes next? Dominic Cruz or Marlon? All right, I'm going to cut it right there because then it gets a little creepy and I don't want to scare our, our audience. But uh, It doesn't um, get creepy. It started creepy. It started. Oh, no, it, it can get a lot creepier. It can. <laughs> I like. Trust me, I screamed his voice calls. <laughs> I listened to a lot of creepy shit, Luke. Well, you know what? That's why you make the big bucks around here, Danny. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, well, thanks to Psycho uh, Incel Steve. Uh, neither here nor there. Uh, all right, all right so, his, so what, what's next for TJ? Um... I think you got to do Marlon Moraes title shot. I really do. I realize he had lost to Asun Sal, but Asun Sal to me had a couple chances against TJ, and you could say, oh, well, they're one and one. But in the rematch at 200, I thought he just got outclassed, to be perfectly honest with you. I think TJ is putting some distance between himself. Why are you going to do a third fight against a guy? And I realize that he beat Moraes, although even that one was close. But the Marais fight, I'm sorry, dude. That guy is all firepower, all skill, all the time. Let's have let's have a really interesting bantamweight fight. Like bantamweight is hot. Why would we go and just do another one that we've already done a few times, a couple of times? And I, yeah, it's not, it'd be fine. It'd be a fine fight. Marlon Marais is a fun contender. He's an interesting contender. He's powerful. He's athletic. In the words of Ben Folks and Chad Dundas, he looks good getting off the bus. Like the whole thing, right? So. That's the way you go. And Dominic Cruz, I, I I do believe that he and TJ have unfinished business. But Danny, he's coming off of a loss, okay? And granted, it, you know, it was a bit of a while ago, but you're just launching a guy into a title shot off of a loss. Look, we had Dominic on the show. I think super highly of his abilities. He's maybe my favorite commentator in the UFC. But a loss is a loss. It should count for something. And there should be some degree of record rehabilitation before a title shot is awarded. So I think you do Marais, Dillashaw. Asun Sal Cruz. I disagree with you. All right, why? I think Asun Sal should get the shot. I mean, this guy, let's look at the facts. This guy's 11 and 1 in his last 12 bouts. Okay. His within within that record, his only loss has been to the champion TJ Dillashaw, and he also has a win against TJ Dillashaw. I understand that that win was very dominant for TJ Dillashaw, but again, this the title needs to be defended. It's it's not about who's what's the sexiest fighter or what fight does the most. It should be awarded to the number one contender. We need to get back to that. Also, Rafael Sansa has a win over Marais, like not too long ago. What was it last year? It's very so. How do you very not give controversial? Him a, still, how, a win's a win. The, uh, Dominic Cruz took the belt from T.J. Dillashaw in a very controversial um, decision as well. That doesn't you mean don't, he was like, Just be real for just a minute. Just yeah. be real. Marais. Whether or not you think he is more deserving than a Sun Sao is a different debate. Mm-hmm. He is clearly a deserving contender on some, on some level. Yes. Be real. Which fight to you is more exciting in theory? Now, in the end, you never know. Moraes Dillashaw. Okay. The, but the but defense, that, that the defense look, rests. Okay, we, we, all talk, we all talk about, oh, Conor McGregor throwing a dolly. That's a black guy in the sport. You know what's a black guy in the sport? Rafael Sansa not getting a title shot. Bro, the get- man has put in the work. The man needs a title shot. I don't know. Same thing with Dustin Poirier. Like we if go. He up, had never fought. If he had never fought TJ, I'd agree. But they fought twice already. I'm happy to see him fight a former champion, Dominic Cruz. And 
I would say this. If you're going to make the Marish fight with Dillashaw, okay, you put Cruz and uh, a Sun Sal on the same card. So that way there's like a connectivity and a relationship between all the outcomes. I- I'm with you on that, but it, I think it should be Dillashaw, Sun Sal, Marais, uh Cruz. And by the way, Marais Cruz is a hell of a fight. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, but not the right one. Anyway. Yeah. Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> all right, let, let's move on. Okay. Let's agree to disagree. Then. All right, that's fine. Um, now let's talk about Demetrius Johnson. Hey, Luke, how's it going? My name is Pedro. I'm calling from Southern California. My question is, with Demetrius Johnson just losing his championship and with him already wiping out that whole flyweight division, would it be a great time for him to finally move up to bantamweight and fight, let's say, a Dominic Cruz, which a win over him would put him right up there in title contention and in the search and in the uh, process to get another title to add to his resume. What do you think about it? And I uh, love what you're doing with the show, man. Keep it up. So basically here... Well, well let me say, can I say thanks mm-hmm. to Peter? Pedro? I have, tr- Pedro. I have trouble with the DR in Spanish. I've always had trouble with it. Pedro? Pedro? Pedro. Um, Peter in Spanish. Uh, great call. Great question. Uh, but go ahead. You had some thoughts about that. Yeah, so we've seen guys like, for example, uh, Rafael Dos Anjos, you know, lose the belt. He goes... The heck with it. I'm done at lightweight. I move up and start another career there. Mm-hmm. Is this the case for Demetrius Johnson? Is this Could this be a fresh start for him and move up to 135? So let me just say this real quick. This is not going to come as some kind of great surprise to the world, but the rankings are fucked up beyond all repair. They are foobarred mm-hmm. yep. real badly. But the foobariness, if that makes any sense, actually works in the fighter's favor if you're at the top of the division. It works against you if you're not, but here's what I mean. I've been saying this to, to managers and fighters whenever I've had private conversations with them. You see Stipe Miocic out there being like, I should get an immediate rematch. And you can make an argument about it one way or the other, but that's not my point. My point is when uh, Francis Ngannou lost to Stipe, where did he end up after that loss in the rankings, Danny? Number one. Where do you think Stipe Miocic is right now after losing? Probably number one. Number one. Where was Jose Aldo after he lost to Max Holloway? Number one. That's an issue. If you are in a title fight and you lose, the rankings panel, they suck ass. But they're going to do you a solid. They're going to put you right at number one. And if anybody is going to end up at number one after a title loss, (laughs) it's going to be Demetrius Johnson for crying out loud. So I don't understand the argument. Like, if you wanted to make an argument about, like, let's see what he could go and get another belt and how he could do there. Well, number one, okay, I would agree that'd be kind of interesting, but DJ has not really seemed all that interested in that. He left bantamweight for a reason. And number two, why do you need to go and worry about beating Dominic Cruz to maybe put yourself in title contention when you're the number one guy in your weight class? Folks, fighters, listen to me, please. If you are holding a title and you lose, or you're a number one contender and you lose, don't worry. (laughs) You're going to be a number one contender when the fight is over. Darren Till, if he doesn't beat Tyron Woodley, I've got great news for you. You're going to be the (laughs) number one contender. It happens after every fight. I don't understand what everyone's so worried about. You're right there. Danny. Yeah, I know I'm yelling, but it just drives me crazy. I know, is no one looking at the rankings? 
Yeah, the rankings are, are ridiculous, but I agree with you on this one. I mean, first of all, the weight difference between bantamweight, like 10 pounds might not seem like a lot, but 10 pounds at that weight is a lot. And I don't know how many people have met Demetrius Johnson. I've uh, I've interviewed him. I've, I've met him in person a number of times, and I'm not a big guy whatsoever, and I'm significantly bigger. He's cheeky tico. He's very small, yeah. So I don't I don't think the weight cut for him at, to 125 is is too tough. No. And to deal with bigger guys and the opposition at 135, man, it's tough. If you look at the top 10 or the top five from 135, I would make an argument that it's probably more competitive than the top five at flyweight. So, did you see this article from Mark Romundi? Which one? About all but six fighters came in over the California regulations. I saw the headline, but I haven't actually. Dived into to the article. Biggest jump in weigh-ins from fight day belonged to Alex Perez, who went from 126 on Friday and fought at 146 yeah. on Saturday. Um, six fighters who came in below the 10% mark were Cody Garbrandt, Cub Swanson, Kevin Holland, Wiley Zhang, Daniel Teller, Daniel Taylor, excuse me, and uh, Wuliji Burin. No, no name of TJ Dillashaw, right? No. Interesting. Here, this interestingly, yeah. Garbrandt weighed the same on fight day as Demetrius Johnson who fights in the division below Garbrandt. Perez weighed 4.6 pounds more than Garbrandt did, though Perez is a flyweight, and Garbrandt is a bantamweight. That yeah. is bananas. Okay, interesting. Right? Okay, that's a, that's an interesting segue to our next question. Okay. We just talked about the winners and losers of the main event, but we're still missing one guy, Cody Garbrandt. All right. Hey, Mr. Luke Thomas. First and foremost, love the show, my man. I love your energy and the different twist you bring. In my opinion, it's just as or equally as good as the show when Eric Hawani hosted it. My question is regarding to Cody Garbrandt. Uh, what should be his next move? And when did UFC match him up? Should it be against someone that he can, you know, start through? Or should they give him another stiff, stiff test? Uh, let me get your thoughts on it, man. Thanks. So... Per our last question, yeah, where do you think Cody Garbrandt's going to end up? You know what? I actually, now that you just told me about the the weight, the fact that Garbrandt weighed in as as much as Demetrius Johnson, it makes me wonder: would it maybe be a good idea for Garbrandt to reinvent himself, go down to one twenty five, and start fresh from there? Because yo, he's got two losses to TJ Dillashaw, yeah. the champion. Yep. We know where that puts you. And if Marlon wins, um, that could change things, could, right? Yeah. Here's my only question for Cody. But man, that's a that's a gamble. So this is the thing about rematches, man. And I was thinking yeah. about this all weekend. In the back in the day, rematches typically some of this is not true, but typically there was a little there was gap between rematches. So like Couture and Liddell would go like two years apart between between their fights. Yeah. And typically the guy who wins the second fight always wins the third. But I don't know if there's even going to be a third one because the second one was more emphatic than the first. So um, that's just a really bad spot to be in. Um, here's what I would say. If he can make flyweight and still carry his power down, I would seriously consider that for the moment. Um, now, I'm contradicting myself to a degree because I'm saying you're the number one contender. What are you worried about? Cody Garbrandt, when they've updated these rankings, in all likelihood, at worst, will be two. And certainly, more than likely, will be number one sitting in the rankings. So, like, you're sitting in a good spot, but then you have to ask yourself, okay, you might be number one, but is that one a bit of an artificial one? Not because you're not very, very talented, but because if we're talking about a contendership queue, you just lost twice. You're not going to be the next guy to get a title shot. So in that sense, you have to rethink things. I don't know, man. He's obviously very, very competitive at bantamweight, very competitive. But if you can let things sort out there for a moment, 
and go down to flyweight and again carry some of that power with you because we know if one thing he is he is absolutely dominating in his in his power and you know maybe he i don't know if picks up speed but can maintain all the speed that he needs yeah i i think it's worth considering considering is the word i'm using not yeah. doing yeah i think it would be worth a try you know take a fight down there see how you feel if you feel good Keep it going. And, you know, this is something that you brought up, and it's interesting. These rematches, rematches should be fights apart, you know, a year apart, two years apart. Imagine if Cody Garbrandt would have been matched up against, I don't know, anyone else, and he just keeps knocking people out. How big that fight would, and TJ Dillashaw retains the belt. How big that fight could have potentially been a year from now could have been huge. But look, you just ruined, I don't want to say ruined, but you definitely hurt a very young and talented fighter's career by just putting him in immediate rematch and now have, now he has two uh, back-to-back losses against the champion. And the second so, one was not, I mean, it was less competitive than the yeah. first. Dude, it's and like this, it didn't, this, it's not headed in the right direction. And this guy's young, this guy's evolving. Like, on, why, why do you put him back Let's in be there? clear about Cody Garbrandt for a second. Cody Garbrandt is an excellent fighter. Yeah. Um. Sure. And, you know, he was a little chippy this week with the media over the old tweets that resurfaced. But I would say generally in my interactions with him, he's been nothing but professional. Uh, and John Anik made a point. Dude, these young guys like Cody Garbrandt and the Brian Ortegas, these like dudes in their mid to like sort of late 20s. Dude, they're pulling people in. Like people are coming to see them. Now, maybe they're not necessarily box or excuse me, they're not uh, pay-per-view uh, main attractions yep. just yet. But like, dude. Staples Center was sold out, man, and people want to see these young guys. Cody Garbrandt is a draw at the box office. At least there's some reason to believe that he is. And I'm not saying that's gone away overnight, but this is not necessarily the best way to nurture that. They're rushing these title fights. They're rushing these title versus title fights. They're rushing these rematches on this immediate thing. Look at this fight, UFC 228. Look, on its, on its, on its surface, there's nothing wrong with Demi- excuse me, Tyron Woodley uh, versus Darren Till. But Jesus Christ, Danny. I get up Saturday morning and I see a tweet from a zombie prophet and he's like, he said, uh, Colby Covington is on the front page of CNN mm-hmm. cheesing with Trump. Yeah. And I go, that can't be real. And I go and look at it. And sure enough, there it is. Now I'm not saying that's a star making performance and moment in, in time, but some of these things, dude, it's like a pot of a soup, right? If you're trying to make especially if you're using like bones to make the broth, Dude, it just takes time to cook. Caldo de costilla. Right. You can't you can't zap that in a microwave, dude. It just takes time for it to be done the right way. And so, Cody, do not write him off. Do not write him off. But I do agree, taking some time back to reflect, how do I get to that next stage of my career? Does it need a weight class reset? Maybe it doesn't. But I, I do think that there is some rethinking about it now because they just pushed him up twice and it didn't go well. So yeah. what are you going to do? Yeah, the UFC is operating like a microwave, and they need to start thinking more like, more like an oven. You know, they got to start thinking. You know, long distance. You know, these immediate rematches, they only make sense in certain scenarios, like the Demetrius Johnson case. If if a guy, if a champion loses, and or like Anderson Silva, he's already older, he doesn't need to go and and, and get a, a huge win streak to to get back up. But in a case like Cody Garbrandt, when you know he still has a lot to grow, dude, why do you why do you throw him up there? So yeah, I agree. But it's definitely he definitely has to rethink about his career. Maybe a new weight class uh, could be interesting. The amount of fights are doing two things. Number one, they're wearing fans' yeah. patience thin, and number two, they are forcing fighters into taking fights ahead of a schedule that often makes sense, even for the UFC and especially for the fighters themselves. And that should be noted. Let's go another one. Cool. 
Now let's talk about the UFC uh, press conference on Friday and uh, a few things that we saw oh, there. Hold, okay, yeah, play, play, play it. That's fine. Play it. Hey, Luke, this is Travis from Michigan. During the 25th anniversary press conference, when Darren Till and Tyron Woodley were squaring off, you could definitely tell there was a size difference between the two. Darren Till looked absolutely huge. Is that going to be a problem for Tyron Woodley? He's always been the bigger guy against his opponents and been able to kind of bully his way through his fight. He does have a lot of skill, but he's always been bigger. Is it going to be different for him not being able to bully the bigger uh, Darren Till? What do you think? Thanks. Bye. You ever seen Tyron Woodley in person? Danny, you ever inter- interacted with him? Um, I think, yeah, I did, actually. When he knocked out Jay Heron at, like, UFC 250-something, 56. I think Aldo and Frankie fought on that card. You mean 156? One f- no, no, no. Then it must have been later. No, yeah, 156. Sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was in Vegas. Or whatever. No, the number yeah, yeah. You, Tyron Woodley, I don't, I don't know that he's all that tall, but uh, I've interacted with him in person a number of times. Yo, dude is yoked. Yo, he's jacked he up. Is, he yeah. is bricked up. And he's super athletic. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I do think that comes with some trade-offs in the gas tank. Uh, I, I think it's not fair to say he has a terrible gas tank. I don't think that's true. But I do think that musculature and that power output and the way he uses it comes at some kind of a trade-off with the gas tank. Right. He's not this Nate Diaz guy that's always. But here's here's the deal. Like, yes, I agree. There was an absolutely enormous uh, size differential between them. I noticed that too. I was shocked at how much it was. But when you say bully, bully in what way? Remember, there's a skill differential, too, in wrestling. Darren Till can train the rest of his life. He's not going to out-wrestle Tyron Woodley. He might be able to like, save himself by staying on the feet, and I guess we're going to have to see how that plays out here. But my issue is, when you say bully, it's like um, if their sizes are what they are and their wrestling skill sets are as different as I think they are, it's going to be Tyron who's doing the bullying, especially early. Now, the question is, how much? I don't know. And if it's enough where Darren Till can keep himself in the fight and it goes late, all bets are off. But I have a very hard time, Danny, believing that Darren Till, or frankly anybody in that division, is going to be muscling Tyron Woodley around. I really have a hard time accepting that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, technique goes a long way and, and Tyron Woodley is very He's technical. both. Yeah. So he's both powerful and technical, but size does matter a lot in wrestling. You know, sprawling, if you got a guy sprawling on you that's 20 pounds heavier than than some other guys, it, you know, you feel it. So we'll see how how that plays out. We'll see even if Darren Till makes weight, to be honest. But man, that size difference looked ridiculous. Who do you think is stronger in the weight room, which is not the same as functional strength, but who do yeah. you think is stronger in the weight room? In the weight room? I'm gonna go with Woodley. Yeah, there's, there's he just looks like the better athlete. Like if, if I were to look at each, like yeah. both guys, who, who looks more athletic, who could probably do crazier shit, probably Tyron. There's Woodley. no, there's no doubt in my mind he's better yeah. in the weight room. Again, that's not the same thing as functional strength, mm-hmm. but very true. Uh, oh, by the way, other thing, if you're wrestling somebody and you're bigger than them, I can say this because I'm bigger than most people. I often have the opportunity to train within a training environment. The major problem I often have with the smaller guys is their speed. They're able to get in on my hips and legs. Now, I have some control there when I'm stronger and bigger, but the speed can give me a problem. Maybe maybe Till is bigger. I bet you at least early, Woodley's a lot faster. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. All right. Any more? Cool. Uh, how, many time, how much time do we have? How many, yeah, a few, how much? few more minutes. Okay, one or two questions. Let's see. Let's just see how this one, other one okay. goes. Okay. Hey, what's going on, Luke and Danny? This is Dylan from New Jersey. Uh, Jersey. I just want a quick question about Henry Cejudo's win over Demetrius Johnson on on Saturday night. I mean, it seems to me that 
wrestling is probably the most important art to really master. You can see that it was a wrestling dominant victory. And you look at all these great champions like George St. Pierre perfected his wrestling, John Jones, even though he wasn't a national champion in, in college, he was a very good wrestler. So it seems like wrestling is probably the, the best art form to, to master in order to be an elite fighter. What do you think about this? Uh, thanks. and love the show. So Daniel Cormier, Henry Cejudo, right? George St. Pierre, uh, you know, all, a lot of the greats have been really great at wrestling. Uh, is wrestling the most dominant, the most important martial art in MMA? Uh, it depends on one's perspective. I, I, I defer to my, uh, as he often calls us, my brother from another mother, Dean Thomas. Um, we are not related. But uh, he had made a point on Twitter, I think, yesterday or two days ago or whatever it was, saying that, well... He didn't know if wrestling by itself was the best skill set. And there's some debate about that. But the guys who come from wrestling, right? And you've got, and then we're talking about through relatively elite or outright elite environments. So, you know, Olympic caliber, Division One or Division Two, even. Um, just the guys who just, you know, were grinding it out in wrestling rooms for their adolescence and uh, teenage years. They just come out different. They can be trained quickly. They have really worked on their bodies to make it very adaptable to um, training of all different kinds and varieties. That again, you also have these takedown skills, which are important. You can learn jujitsu much quicker. Um, you're more teachable. You're coachable. You're ready for a, a hard training. Uh, you just have a certain mentality and physicality, and there's just a certain degree of carryover that comes from that. That jujitsu, you know this, man. Sometimes you get in these rooms, and it can be, you know, lazy is not the right word, but relaxed, have some fun. Everyone's fist bumping and high fiving and doing the shaka and all that bullshit, right? And in wrestling rooms, man, you know, someone made a great point to me about wrestling one time, right? Because I went to watch. Uh, I saw this was the big match years ago. I went in college when they were in college, and I saw David Taylor versus Kyle Dake. And that was like in college at the time, man, that was, you know, that was uh, Jordan versus LeBron or something, right? And, uh, and uh, he, I noticed something. When the match was over, they shook hands, but like super reluctantly. Like, you know, like you had to just by virtue of the rules, but oh, yeah. there was no custom to it, okay? Uh -huh. And he goes, you ever notice that at the end of wrestling matches, these guys barely shake hands and acknowledge each other. And at the end of a really tough fight, these guys are high-fiving and hugging. There's a certain degree of spirituality. Yo, in college wrestling, they don't have none of that. They yeah. don't do any of that. Dog, they're warriors. They're warriors out there. And so you take somebody from that environment, you've already got carryover skills, which, by the way, in, on its own, Danny, might be an argument to make that they're the best. Yeah. But you've got all the other attributes as well that come over where these guys are hard nosed, and as we say in the Marine Corps, hard chargers, man. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know. Uh, I haven't heard of Dean Thomas' take, take, but that's Dean Thomas, by the way, an underrated follow. But go yeah. ahead, I, I will follow him uh, now uh, after the show. But yeah, that's something that that I had in my mind. Like, sure, like wrestling has a bunch of attributes, but it comes with a certain mentality. Like being in the wrestling room, I, I wrestled in high school, like. That thing is clo as close as you can get to child abuse without it being child abuse. <laughs> they put you through hell. And there's a really famous quote. It might be by Dan Gable. It's like, once you've wrestled, everything in life is easy. And 100% yeah. true. I mean, in wrestling, like, look at Daniel Cormier. Like, all the adversity he's had to go through. The losses to John Jones. And he's still so persistent. I believe Henry Cejudo, after winning the title, he said at one point he was about to quit. 
but he didn't. Like the type of mentality that wrestling breeds, there's no quit. And yeah, 100% as far as like no shaking hands after after the match. It's it's uh it's really a a a like a custom thing, but you don't really like you just kind of throw your hand out there and then you have to go and shake uh the opponent's coach's hand and yep. then you go back to your coach and he yells at you whether you win or you won. Yep. Uh, whether you win or you lost. So, yeah, the, the mentality that wrestling breeds is is one of a champion's. And, and there's another great quote. The Dan Gable one is good, but Cale Sanderson had one, which is that wrestling is going to fill in the gaps that my parenting can't, yeah. right? So if you're a good parent and your kid's in wrestling, they're just going to get a certain degree of positive but tough character development that's going to make them ready for all kinds of life challenges, whether they're on the mat or they're off. And, and yeah. uh, all the wrestlers I've known – have at least exemplified some of that. You get these super elite ones like a Cejudo, an Olympic gold medalist, you know. Yeah. They're just a different level, so. And also, like, the mechanics of wrestling. Like, wrestling, you're going 100% a sprint. the whole it's time. It's a sprint. Oh, it's a sprint minutes. the whole time. Yeah. Um, and, and in jiu-jitsu, like, you tap out, you get into certain positions, and, you know, you don't want to get anything hyperextended, so you stop the match. There's a lot of stalemate on positions. So, by definition, you're already resting a lot. In wrestling, it's nonstop. So, that does something to you. When you're nonstop for your whole life, years. Imagine Henry Cejudo growing up, I don't know, like, eight years old, just wrestling every single day. Like, that does something to your mind. Yeah, it really does. All right, man, we, we're out of time. Um, the calls were good. They were good. Yeah. We had a mouth breather. I don't know if you want to feature them. 15 seconds. Yeah, play it. It's just mouth breather. All right, play it. This is a very notorious mouth breather. That was a voicemail, by the way. Your lack of faith disturbs me. It's just this for 15 seconds? Yeah. It's pretty good. Pretty good. Wait, did you just make a vein? Voice? No, no, no. That w- it's my Bane sounds like my Bane. Darth Vader. Okay, but it was Darth Vader. Your lack of faith yeah, yeah. disturbs Darth me. Vader. Yeah, come on now. Not I was bored into it, bored right, right. by it. That's different. All right, buddy. Good job today. Thanks. Really appreciate it. Got to thank uh, Israel Adesanya, and uh, I was like, we had the people on Skype. So we had we had Sarah Kaufman on Skype, Israel Adesanya on Skype, but of course Dustin Poirier. We got to leave Dustin alone. We've had him on like every yeah. week. So uh, we th- big thanks to him. Big thanks to you, my friend. Good job. All right, don't forget, call the number 844-866-2468. Send us your tweets using the hashtag TheMMAHour. Until next time, stay frosty.